0: Hello! Below there!
1: When he heard a voice thus calling to him, he was standing at the door of his box with a flag in his hand, furled round its short pole. One would have thought, considering the nature of the ground, that he could not have doubted from what quarter the voice came. But instead of looking up to where I stood on the top of the steep cutting nearly over his head, he turned himself about and looked down the line. There was something remarkable in his manner of doing so though i could not have said for my life what but i know it was remarkable enough to attract my notice even though his figure was foreshortened and shadowed down in the deep trench and mine was high above him so steeped in the glow of an angry sunset that i had shaded my eyes with my hand before i saw him at all hello below From looking down the line, he turned himself about again, and raising his eyes, saw my figure high above him. Is there any path by which I can come down and speak to you? He looked up at me without replying, and I looked down at him without pressing him too soon with a repetition of my idle question. Just then, there came a vague vibration in the earth and air, quickly changing into a violent pulsation. And an oncoming rush that caused me to start back as though it had forced to draw me down. When such vapor as rose to my height from this rapid train had passed me and was skimming away over the landscape, I looked down again and saw him refurling the flag he had shown while the train went by. I repeated my inquiry. After a pause, during which he seemed to regard me with fixed attention, he motioned with his rolled up flag towards a point on my level, some two or three hundred yards distant. I called down to him, All right! and made for that point. There, by dint of looking closely about me, I found a rough, zigzag-descending path notched out, which I followed. The cutting was extremely deep and unusually precipitate. It was made through a clammy stone that became oozier and wetter as I went down, For these reasons, I found the way long enough to give me time to recall a singular air of reluctance or compulsion with which he had pointed out the path. When I came down low enough upon the zigzag descent to see him again, I saw that he was standing between the rails on the way by which the train had lately passed, in an attitude as if he were waiting for me to appear. He had his left hand at his chin, and that left elbow rested on his right hand, crossed over his breast. His attitude was one of such expectation and watchfulness, that I stopped a moment, wondering at it. I resumed my downward way and, stepping out upon the level of the railroad and drawing near to him, saw that he was a dark, sallow man with a dark beard and rather heavy eyebrows. His post was in as solitary and dismal a place as ever I saw. On either side, a dripping wet wall of jagged stone, excluding all view but a strip of sky, the perspective one way, only a crooked prolongation of this great dungeon, the shorter perspective in the other direction, terminating in a gloomy red light, and the gloomier entrance to a black tunnel, in whose massive architecture there was a barbarous, depressing, and forbidding air. So little sunlight ever found its way to this spot that it had an earthy, deadly smell and so much cold wind rushed through it that it struck chill to me, as if I had left the natural world. Before he stirred, I was near enough to him to have touched him. Not even then, removing his eyes from mine, he stepped back one step and lifted his hand. This was a lonesome post to occupy, I said, and it had riveted my attention when I looked down from up yonder. A visitor was a rarity, I should suppose, Not an unwelcome rarity, I hoped. In me, he merely saw a man who had been shut up within narrow limits all his life. And who, being at last set free, had a newly awakened interest in these great works. To such purpose I spoke to him, but I am far from sure of the terms I used. For besides that I am not happy in opening any conversation, there was something in the man that daunted me. He directed a most curious look towards the red light near the tunnel's mouth and looked all about it as if something were missing from it and then looked at me. That light was part of his charge, was it not? He answered in a low voice, don't you know it is? The monstrous thought came into my mind as I perused the fixed eyes and the Saturnine face that this was a spirit, not a man. I have speculated since whether there may have been infection in his mind. In my turn, I stepped back, but in making the action, I detected in his eyes some latent fear of me. This put the monstrous thought to flight. You look at me, I said, forcing a smile, as if you had a dread of me. I was doubtful, he returned, whether I had seen you before. Where? He pointed to the red light he had looked at. There, I said. Intently watchful of me, he replied, but without sound, yes. My good fellow, what should I do there? (laughs) However be that as it may, I never was there, you may swear. I think I may, he rejoined. Yes, I am sure I may. His manner cleared, like my own. He replied to my remarks with readiness and in well-chosen words. Had he much to do there? Yes, that was easy to say. He had enough responsibility to bear. But exactness and watchfulness were what was required of him. And of actual work, manual labor, he had next to none. To change that signal, to trim those lights, and to turn this iron handle now and then, was all he had to do under that head. Regarding those many long and lonely hours of which I seem to make so much, he could only say that the routine of his life had shaped itself into that form, and he had grown used to it. He had taught himself a language down here, if only to know it by sight and to have formed his own crude ideas of its pronunciation, could be called learning it. He had also worked at fractions and decimals and tried a little algebra, but he was, and had been as a boy, a poor hand at figures. Was it necessary for him when on duty always to remain in that channel of damp air? And could he never rise into the sunshine from between those high stone walls? Why, that depended upon times and circumstances. Under some conditions, there would be less upon the line than under others, and the same held good as to certain hours of the day and night. In bright weather, he did choose occasions for getting a little above these lower shadows, But being at all times liable to be called by his electric bell, and at such times listening for it with redoubled anxiety, the relief was less than I would suppose. He took me into his box where there was a fire, a desk for an official book in which he had to make certain entries, a telegraphic instrument with its dial face and needles, and the little bell of which he had spoken. On my trusting that he would excuse the remark that he had been well-educated, and, I hoped I might say without offense, perhaps educated above that station, he observed that instances of slight incongruity in such wise would rarely be found wanting among large bodies of men, that he had heard it was so in workhouses, in the police force, even in that last desperate resource, the army, and that he knew it was so, more or less, in any great railway staff. He had been, when young, if I could believe it, sitting in that hut he scarcely could, a student of natural philosophy, and had attended lectures. But he had run wild, misused his opportunities, gone down, and never risen again. He had no complaint to offer about that. He had made his bed, and he lay upon it. It was far too late to make another. All that I have here condensed, he said in a quiet manner, with his grave, dark regards divided between me and the fire. He threw in the words sir from time to time, and especially when he referred to his youth, as though to request me to understand that he claimed to be nothing but what I found him. He was several times interrupted by the little bell, and had to read off messages and send replies. Once he had to stand without the door and display a flag as a train passed, and make some verbal communication to the driver. In the discharge of his duties, I observed him to be remarkably exact and vigilant, breaking off his discourse at a syllable and remaining silent until what he had to do was done. In a word, I should have set this man down as one of the safest of men to be employed in that capacity, but for the circumstance that, while he was speaking to me, he twice broke off with a fallen color, turned his face towards the little bell when it did not ring opened the door of the hut, which was kept shut to exclude the unhealthy damp, and looked out towards the red light near the mouth of the tunnel. On both of those occasions, he came back to the fire with the inexplicable air upon him, which I had remarked, without being able to define, when we were so far asunder. Said I, when I rose to leave him, you almost make me think that I have met with a contented man. I am afraid I must acknowledge that I said it to lead him on. I believe I used to be so, he rejoined in the low voice in which he had first spoken. But I am troubled, sir, I am troubled. He would have recalled the words if he could. He had said them, however, and I took them up quickly. With what? What is your trouble? It is very difficult to impart, sir. It is very, very difficult to speak of. If ever you make me another visit, I will try to tell you but I expressly intend to make you another visit. Say, when shall it be? I go off early in the morning, and I shall be on again at ten tomorrow night, sir. I will come at eleven. He thanked me and went out at the door with me. I'll show my white light, sir, he said in his peculiar low voice, till you have found the way up. When you have found it, don't call out. And when you are at the top, don't call out. His manner seemed to make the place strike colder to me, but I said no more than, very well. And when you come down tomorrow night, don't call out. Let me ask you a parting question. What made you cry, hello, below there, tonight? Heaven knows, said I. I cried something to that effect. Not to that effect, sir. Those were the very words. I know them well. Admit those were the very words. I said them, no doubt, because I saw you below. For no other reason. What other reason could I possibly have? You had no feeling that they were conveyed to you in any supernatural way? No. He wished me good night and held up his light. I walked by the side of the down line of rails, with a very disagreeable sensation of a train coming behind me, until I found the path. It was easier to mount than to descend, and I got back to my inn without any adventure. Punctual to my appointment, I placed my foot on the first notch of the zigzag next night, as the distant clocks were striking eleven. He was waiting for me at the bottom, with his white light on. I have not called out, I said, when we came close together. May I speak now? By all means, sir. Good night, then, and here's my hand. Good night, sir, and here's mine. With that, we walked side by side to his box, entered it, closed the door, and sat down by the fire. I have made up my mind, sir, he began, bending forward as soon as we were seated, and speaking in a tone but a little above a whisper. That you shall not have to ask me twice what troubles me. I took you for someone else yesterday evening. That troubles me. That mistake? No, that's someone else. Who is it? I don't know. Like me? I don't know. I never saw the face. The left arm is across the face. The right arm is waved, violently waved, this way. I followed his action with my eyes, and it was the action of an arm gesticulating with the utmost passion and vehemence. For God's sake, clear the way. One moonlit night, said the man. I was sitting here when I heard a voice cry, hello, below there. I started up, looked from that door, and saw this someone else, standing by the red light near the tunnel, waving as I just now showed you. The voice seemed hoarse with shouting and it cried, look out, look out, and then again, Hello, below there, look out. I caught up my lamp, turned it on red, and ran towards the figure calling. What's wrong? What has happened? Where? It stood just outside the blackness of the tunnel. I advanced so close upon it that I wondered at its keeping the sleeve across its eyes. I ran right up at it and had my hand stretched out to pull the sleeve away when it was gone. Into the tunnel, said I. No, I ran on into the tunnel, 500 yards. I stopped and held my lamp above my head and saw the figures of the measured distance, saw the wet stains stealing down the walls, trickling through the arch. I ran out again faster than I had run in, for I had a mortal abhorrence of the place upon me. And I looked all around the red light with my own red light. And I went up the iron ladder to the gallery atop of it. And I came down again and ran back here. I telegraphed both ways. An alarm has been given. Is anything wrong? The answer came back both ways, all well. Resisting the slow touch of a frozen finger tracing out my spine, I showed him how that this figure must be a deception of his sense of sight, and how that figures originating in disease of the delicate nerves that minister to the functions of the eye were known to have often troubled patients, some of whom had become conscious of the nature of their affliction, and had even proved it by experiments upon themselves. As to an imaginary cry, said I, Do but listen for a moment to the wind in this unnatural valley while we speak so low, and to the wild harp it makes on the telegraph wires. That was all very well, he returned, after we had sat listening for a while, and he ought to know something of the wind and the wires, he who so often passed long winter nights there alone and watching, but he would beg to remark that he had not finished. I asked his pardon, and he slowly added these words, touching my arm. Within six hours after the appearance, the memorable accident on this line happened. And within ten hours, the dead and wounded were brought along through the tunnel, over the spot where the figure had stood. A disagreeable shudder crept over me, but I did my best against it. It was not to be denied, I rejoined that this was a remarkable coincidence, calculated deeply to impress his mind. But it was unquestionable that remarkable coincidences did continually occur, and they must be taken into account in dealing with such a subject. Though to be sure, I must admit, I added, for I thought I saw that he was going to bring the objection to bear upon me, men of common sense did not allow much for coincidences in making the ordinary calculations of life he again begged to remark that he had not finished. I again begged his pardon for being betrayed into interruptions. This, he said, again laying his hand upon my arm and glancing over his shoulder with hollow eyes, was just a year ago. Six or seven months passed, and I had recovered from the surprise and shock when one morning, As the day was breaking, I, standing at that door, looked towards the red light and saw the specter again. He stopped with a fixed look at me. Did it cry out? No, it was silent. Did it wave its arm? No, it leaned against the shaft of the light, with both hands before the face, like this. Once more, I followed his action with my eyes. It was an action of mourning. I've seen such an attitude in stone figures on tombs. Did you go up to it? I came in and sat down, partly to collect my thoughts, partly because it had turned me faint. When I went to the door again, daylight was above me and the ghost was gone. But nothing followed, nothing came of this? He touched me on the arm with his forefinger, twice or thrice, giving a ghastly nod each time. That very day, as a train came out of the tunnel, I noticed at a carriage window on my side what looked like a confusion of hands and heads, and something waved. I saw it just in time to signal the driver, stop. He shut off and put his brake on, but the train drifted past here a 150 yards or more. I ran after it, and as I went along, I heard terrible screams and cries. A beautiful young lady had died instantaneously in one of the compartments and was brought in here and laid down on this floor between us. Involuntarily, I pushed my chair back as I looked from the boards at which he pointed to himself. True, sir, true. Precisely as it happened. So I tell it to you. I could think of nothing to say to any purpose, and my mouth was very dry. The wind and the wires took up the story with a long, lamenting wail. He resumed. Now, sir, mark this, and judge how my mind is troubled. The spectre came back a week ago. Ever since, it has been there now and again by fits and starts. At the light? At the danger light. What does it seem to do? He repeated, if possible with increased passion and vehemence, that former gesticulation of, For God's sake, clear the way. Then he went on, I have no peace or rest for it. It calls to me, for many minutes together, in an agonized manner. Below there, look out, look out. It stands waving to me. It rings my little bell. I caught at that. Did it ring your bell yesterday evening, when I was here and you went to the door? Twice. Why, see, said I, how your imagination misleads you. My eyes were on the bell, and my ears were open to the bell. And if I am a living man, it did not ring at those times, no, nor at any other time, except when it was rung in the natural course of physical things by the station communicating with you. He shook his head. I have never made a mistake as to that yet, sir. I have never confused the spectre's ring with the man's. The ghost's ring is a strange vibration in the bell that it derives from nothing else, and I have not asserted that the bell stirs to the eye. I don't wonder that you failed to hear it, but I heard it. And did the specter seem to be there when you looked out? It was there. Both times, he repeated firmly. Both times. Will you come to the door with me and look for it now? He bit his underlip as though he were somewhat unwilling, but arose. I opened the door and stood on the step, while he stood in the doorway. There was the danger light. There was the dismal mouth of the tunnel. There were the high, wet stone walls of the cutting. There were the stars above them. Do you see it? I asked him, taking particular note of his face. His eyes were prominent and strained, but not very much more so perhaps than my own had been when I had directed him earnestly towards the same spot. No, he answered, it is not there. We went in again, shut the door and resumed our seats. I was thinking how best to improve this advantage, if it might be called one, when he took up the conversation in such a matter of course way. So assuming that there could be no serious question of fact between us, that I felt myself placed in the weakest of positions. By this time you will fully understand, sir, he said, that what troubles me so dreadfully is the question What does the spectre mean? I was not sure, I told him, that I did fully understand. What is its warning against? he said, ruminating with his eyes on the fire and only by times turning them on me. What is the danger? Where is the danger? There is danger overhanging somewhere on the line. Some dreadful calamity will happen. It is not to be doubted this third time after what has gone before. But surely this is a cruel haunting of me. What can I do? He pulled out his handkerchief and wiped the drops from his heated forehead. If I telegraph danger on either side of me or on both, I can give no reason for it he went on, wiping the palms of his hands. I should get into trouble and do no good. They would think I was mad. This is the way it would work. Message, danger, take care, answer. What danger, where? Message, don't know, but for God's sake, take care. They would displace me. What else could they do? His pain of mind was most pitiable to see. It was the mental torture of a conscientious man, oppressed beyond endurance by an unintelligible responsibility involving life. When it first stood under the danger light, he went on, putting his dark hair back from his head and drawing his hands outward across and across his temples in an extremity of feverish distress.
0: Why not tell me where that accident was to happen? If it must happen, why not tell me how it could be averted? If it could have been averted, when on its second coming it hid its face. Why not tell me instead, she is going to die? Let them keep her at home. If it came on those two occasions, only to show me that its warnings were true, and so to prepare me for the third. Why not warn me plainly now, and I, Lord help me, a mere poor signalman on this solitary station, why not go to somebody with credit to be believed and power to act?
1: When I saw him in this state, I saw that for the poor man's sake, as well as for the public safety, what I had to do for the time was to compose his mind. Therefore, setting aside all question of reality or unreality between us, I represented to him that whoever thoroughly discharged his duty must do well, and that at least it was his comfort that he understood his duty, though he did not understand these confounding appearances. In this effort, I succeeded far better than in the attempt to reason him out of his conviction. He became calm. The occupations incidental to his post as the night advanced began to make larger demands on his attention, and I left him at two in the morning. I had offered to stay through the night, but he would not hear of it. That I more than once looked back at the red light as I ascended the pathway, that I did not like the red light, and that I should have slept but poorly if my bed had been under it. I see no reason to conceal. Nor did I like the two sequences of the accident and the dead girl. I see no reason to conceal that either. But what ran most in my thoughts was the consideration, how ought I to act, having become the recipient of this disclosure? I had proved the man to be intelligent, vigilant, painstaking, and exact, But how long might he remain so in his state of mind? Though in a subordinate position, still he held a most important trust. And would I, for instance, like to stake my own life on the chances of his continuing to execute it with precision? Unable to overcome a feeling that there would be something treacherous in my communicating what he had told me to his superiors in the company, without first being plain with himself and proposing a middle course to him, I ultimately resolved to offer to accompany him, otherwise keeping his secret for the present, to the wisest medical practitioner we could hear of in those parts, and to take his opinion. A change in his time of duty would come round next night, he had apprised me, and he would be off an hour or two after sunrise, and on again soon after sunset. I had appointed to return accordingly. Next evening was a lovely evening, and I walked out early to enjoy it. The sun was not yet quite down when I traversed the field path near the top of the deep cutting. I would extend my walk for an hour, I said to myself, half an hour on and half an hour back, and it would then be time to go to my signalman's box. Before pursuing my stroll, I stepped to the brink and mechanically looked down from the point from which I had first seen him. I cannot describe the thrill that seized upon me when, close at the mouth of the tunnel, I saw the appearance of a man with his left sleeve across his eyes, passionately waving his right arm. The nameless horror that oppressed me passed in a moment, for in a moment I saw that this appearance of a man was a man indeed and that there was a little group of other men standing at a short distance to whom he seemed to be rehearsing the gesture he made. The danger light was not yet lighted. Against its shaft, a little low hut, entirely new to me, had been made of some wooden supports and tarpaulin. It looked no bigger than a bed, with an irresistible sense that something was wrong. With a flashing, self-reproachful fear that fatal mischief had come of my leaving the man there and causing no one to be sent to overlook or correct what he did, I descended the notched path with all the speed I could make. What is the matter? I asked the men. Signalman killed this morning, sir. Not the men belonging to that box. Yes, sir.
0: Not the men I know.
1: You will recognize him, sir, if you knew him, said the man who spoke for the others, solemnly uncovering his own head and raising an end of the tarpaulin.
0: For his face is quite composed. Oh, how did this happen? How did this happen?
1: I asked, turning from one to another as the hut closed in again. He was cut down by an engine, sir. No man in England knew his work better but somehow he was not clear the outer rail. It was just a broad day. He'd struck the light and had the lamp in his hand as the engine came out of the tunnel his back was towards her and she cut it down. That man drove her and was showing how it happened. Show the gentleman Tom. The man who wore a rough dark dress stepped back to his former place at the mouth of the tunnel. "'Coming round the curve in the tunnel, sir,' he said. I saw him at the end, like as if I saw him down a perspective glass. There was no time to check speed, and I knew him to be very careful. As he didn't seem to take heed of the whistle, I shut it off when we were running down upon him and called to him as loud as I could call. "'What did you say?' "'I said,
0: below there! Look out! Look out!' For God's sake, clear the way!
1: I started. It was a dreadful time, sir. I never left off calling for him. I put this arm before my eyes, not to see. And I waved this arm to the last, but it was no use. Without prolonging the narrative to dwell on any one of its curious circumstances more than on any other, I may, in closing it, point out the coincidence but the warning of the engine driver included not only the words which the unfortunate signalman had repeated to me as haunting him, but also the words which I myself, not he, had attached, and that only in my own mind to the gesticulation he had imitated.
2: Hi, I'm Jamie Markey.
1: (laughs) And I'm
3: Michael Tatum. And this...
2: Is school intentions.
3: Oh my god, I did it right this time. I
2: did it right too. We,
3: Success. I'm so It only took us 102 episodes.
2: That's right. <laughs> only 102. Never
3: again, never again. Um, We've
2: gotten it at right at least 5 or 6 times. Uh,
3: at least. Never in a row.
2: No, God, no, <laughs> uh, no,
3: that's
2: rid- ridiculous. Like, what are we? We're not perfectionists. Yeah, I mean, we're not, we are. But we're
3: very. Not. I mean, not really. Uh, contr- we are. We're just not we're, very good at we're it. We're type A personalities, but we refu- <laughs> But we're also rebels, so we refuse to be hemmed in.
2: We're type A personalities, but we're also like really sleepy. <laughs> so like, we need a nap, and so <laughs> yeah,
3: like a lot of naps. I'm like, you know, that's why I have so French many. bulldogs. I relate.
2: Yeah, exactly. Just want to sleep exactly. for like
3: 20 hours a day and just get up at night.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Oh. So we are in our second week of October. Is yeah, that
3: where we are? Yeah, it's already. It's to, we're recording today happens to be October 13th.
2: Ooh. Ooh. Do you know 2 years ago? Ooh. To October
3: 13th. So like so like 100 years ago.
2: No. Oh, no. Literally two years ago.
3: Which feels October, like a hundred years ago. It,
2: oh, yeah. That, that would have been two months ago. It feels like a hundred years ago. Right. Uh, uh, I was in Italy. I was in Rome on right. October 13th, which was a Friday. And we did a ghost tour in Rome on Friday the 13th. It was pretty great. We felt... Like, we were making the right choice. And we did. That's got to so be more much, than
3: two years ago, because two years ago, we, Brandon and I were in Paris. Three years ago. Yeah, three years Sorry, for you, because years the next year yeah. is when, around this time, Brandon and I were, well, exactly at this time, Brandon and I were in Paris.
2: That was two years. Okay, so it's yeah. three years for us, two years for you, four years for Monica. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. And Monica and I can't get married until you guys get married. You guys got to get married first, and <laughs> I'll get married, okay. then Monica will that's how it works.
3: <laughs> I didn't realize we were going the seesaw <laughs> route. Um, I
2: didn't either, but it makes the most sense at this point. So, whenever anybody's like, you guys aren't yeah, married,
3: I mean, we like, were going to, like, yeah. uh, no shit. We were actually going to look at a venue the day before. Like, there were, like we, we had um, words, Tatum, words. We had scheduled to go do a viewing. At a venue, which we were really Mm -hmm. considering, like, this is probably going to be the one, you know, if the price is right. And all the research suggested it was going to be. So it was just, like, almost going to see it was just going to be a formality. And before we could go, the fucking lockdown happened. Yeah. Like, the day before. And we're like, oh, well, just you know, in a few months when things go, in a few months,
2: (laughs) when things get back to
3: normal, we'll— And then
2: it's been 100 years.
3: Yeah. And I'm like, God, is marriage still even going to be an institution by the time we come out of this fucking thing? It may not
2: be. There's no, no promises.
3: I don't know. Uh,
2: um, oh, thank you, Chris Waycamp, for reading our opening story. Yes,
3: yes. Yay. I've always loved and it. What was the story? It was so funny. So it was Charles Dickens, The Signal Man. And uh, it was funny because I was already thinking about using it, and someone on Twitter suggested, like, have you ever thought about using? And I was like, as a matter of fact. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, if, that, if that listener, that Twitter user uh, and listener is uh, listening now, and I'm, I'm sure you are, I just want you to know that it wasn't your idea. <laughs> That's
2: right, you, but you inspired him to but continue. But you
3: inspired me to remember the idea I had already. That's had. right.
2: And Chris, uh, Chris is excellent. He is in Borderlands with us.
3: Yes, he is. He's.
2: Um, he was also. Um, he was also the. He was also
3: the bad guy in uh, Steins Gate Zero. And well, yeah. and, and also yes, in Borderlands with us. And so yeah, he's he's all over the place. And he is. And he's, and in he's in sensei My Hero. in My Hero. Yeah. As uh, as uh, um, so I forgot I always fucking forget the character names. God, I'm so bad at this. But he's an important right. guy. He's one of the he's like he's the
2: teacher. He's of the class teacher. 1-8.
3: Yeah, he's the sleeping bag teacher. Yeah. Um,
2: don't get mad at us because we don't know the names. And a fun yeah, don't
3: get mad. It's your job to know, know the We're perfectionists, but
2: we're tired. <laughs> <laughs>
3: and we're only perfectionists because the scope of what we care about is so small. <laughs> <laughs> Which makes bigger perfectionist very it used easy. To be, it
2: used to be, bigger <laughs> back when we cared what other people thought. But that yeah, but
3: as <laughs> you get older, you're like, more. oh fuck it. You know, I just <laughs> <you're>, the <laughs> things you care about just just they yeah your your um your range your your the range of your sympathies <laughs> diminish yeah. with age, and they should. It's they true. really should. I just don't have the energy or the bandwidth to deal with so much that I totally would like jump at the chance to deal with like t- even ten years ago. Yeah, and I'm like, man, I can't, I can't wait to be in my 60s and only care about like my dogs and like knitting.
2: Oh, I'm not picking up knitting so that I can just care about those things. (laughs) I'm not gonna do that. I'll just keep caring about
3: my dogs. All right, then I just there he is, just dogs. There it is, dogs and like. Bartending or something like mixology. I could get
2: behind puzzles. Dogs, I'll do puzzles. Dogs,
3: coffee, and mixology. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'll test to at your mixology,
0: mm-hmm. but I'm going
2: to stick with puzzles. I think puzzles for me. I enjoy a puzzle. Oh, I but don't. I don't. I don't enjoy um, putting up the puzzle and or storing it somewhere till I'm done. So on my iPad, I have a puzzle app. That will, and then I can just put it together. So, this is what I do when we watch scary movies is I put together a puzzle at the same time (laughs) so that I'm not thoroughly immersed, so that I don't get thoroughly scared.
3: (laughs) Or a really good jump scare happens and undoes all your work. (laughs) Yeah. So, I don't have
2: to worry about that because it's all on the iPad. Everything Uh, goes uh, with it. See, that's pretty
3: good. I, you know, for me, puzzles, I, I guess I get it in the abstract. Uh, but man, I just don't want to work that hard at something. I could just, oh, if I really wanted to see that picture of the Alps, I'll just fucking Google it. I don't, <laughs> why do I, <laughs> why, why do I have to do all the work? It's like, it's like fondue <laughs> restaurants. Why do you charge so much? I'm the one doing all the fucking work. Yeah. I don't
2: get it. Do you remember there was like a cook your own steak place?
3: <laughs> yes, I do. And I'm like, then this is, so you're going to knock about 30 fucking percent off my bill? Cause I'm like, I'm, like, I know. I'm doing everything. I th- and then you're not like,
2: even going to give me a flat surface to. Like, you should basically get, pay me. I'm, both yeah. I, don't...
3: I-, I should pay you a disposal fee. Like I'm, I'm the one yeah. getting rid of your excess stock. That's what this is really about, folks. But yeah,
2: <laughs> right. It would just be cheaper to have somebody come in and clean up your house after you cook a steak. Right. <laughs> Ugh. Oh, I say. Ugh.
3: I. Oh, life. Life is so hard.
2: <laughs> it's so hard. I am. I am tired today, though. I'll be honest about that. Man, I had
0: yesterday. A busy
2: day. Really busy day yesterday. That included having my blood taken.
0: Yeah. And then yeah. today
2: we're working on this. And I went to the gym this morning private, small gym, everything's safe and careful. Um, better warm myself out, and then, <laughs> and then I have these big old bruises on my arms from having my blood taken because I am one of those people who's, and I know that we have some listeners that can sympathize with me. My veins are like on the back of my arm, <laughs> like they're, you cannot find them, they hide. Every time I go get my blood taken, the person taking my blood is always like, Oh, <laughs> so, and oh dear, you, know, I you love sit down, going, you're like, Fair warning,
3: this is going to be yeah. difficult for both of us,
2: yeah. I love going to Quest. Quest is good because that's all they do. Mm -hmm. And one time I was talking to them and I was like, you guys are so good at this. Like, it's not torture. And she's like, that's all we do. Blood and poo.
3: (laughs) (laughs) What a great slogan.
2: I'm never not coming here. Blood and poo is (laughs) all we do. Blood and poo. (laughs) And so uh, I went in. And for whatever reason, she lost my vein. It started, and then my blood was like, no, thank you, ma'am. We're not going to flow, which we talked about. And it didn't go. And I was fucking hydrated. So here I am trying not to get angry at my veins like that's going to do anything. (laughs) And uh, so she had to go to the other side. And that was the one where she's like, okay, drop your arm a little bit and make a fist and make a fist and move it this way and move it that way. And she's like, okay, I found it. (laughs) And it was tight. She's like, this is a smaller vein. So let's see how it works. (sighs) <sighs> and then too, because they have to go deeper. It's not like you, where your veins just nice on the surface, and they are just like oh, it's just barely anything to go through. No, it's hiding, yeah. hiding underneath all my flesh, my and my
3: nerves, veins, are all very, the nerves. My veins are very confrontational. They're they're like they're daring you, oh, yeah. to prick them. And then once you're they're pricked, uh, the blood is like good luck, motherfucker. Like the blood is yeah. like K-Rose That's syrup for some reason. It's weird. So I'm like it's, my veins are yeah. easily like. So I I guess I lull. Uh um, you know, the the text into a false sense of security. They're like, oh, the veins are right there. I'm like, yeah, it's still not gonna come out. It's just you're gonna you're gonna have to really plunge it like you're fucking fixing a toilet. Like it's not yeah. gonna be easy. Because yeah, my, my is, blood is does like not want to uh, leave my body.
2: Well, so I have trauma from mm. my very first time taking getting mm. my blood drawn. Mm.
0: Mm. And
2: so I was like 12 and I had to have a test thing and the guy my veins collapsed like i don't know if you've experienced it don't recommend it Ugh. not pleasant blah,
0: blah,
2: blah. <laughs> so like one arm the vein collapsed he didn't the other arm a vein collapsed um he should have been using it for a child because they still should really <laughs>
3: <laughs> they should just use like the fisher price syringe
2: <laughs> yeah yeah and so what i remember is cuz it was an outpatient going to get my blood taken but it was at the hospital um, everybody in the first floor could hear me shout because it's me shouting as well. It's, I didn't train to have be able to scream loud. It's always been part of my spirit. And so I was just screaming, take it out! Take it out! Uh, as loud as I could, which gave my mom the giggles. I'll be honest. That's so About funny. That. Take it out!
0: She,
2: she We're like, trying. This is, filthy. We- this is a filthy thing to shout. So uh, then... You know, after that, I couldn't um, watch myself give blood, so I can't look at it. If I watch it, that's yeah. probably why I don't like gore either, because mm, um, mm, I bled a lot with all of this, too. Oh, oh um, God, yeah. And so oh, uh. that now I can't, like, watch... I will get lightheaded, and I hate yeah. that. There's nothing I can do about it, though, so. Well, it's not
3: like a, not like a character flaw. I mean, it's a good thing that you feel no. that way about blood. It means you're probably never going to put yourself in situations where blood is likely to flow. So that's just a good, it's a, it's a good evolutionary right. advantage right. in, in my opinion, or at least it can be. Um, yeah. I don't have that problem, so I do, a lot, I do stuff that's a lot dumber than you do.
2: Well, that's true. Because
3: I'm fascinated by medical <laughs> stuff, and I'm like, oh, I want to watch that. Like, but I'm see, I'm the one that'll go camping in the woods when you wouldn't, and that's because you have yeah. a better sense of self-preservation than I do. I do. Yeah. But uh, it's funny. Yeah, you I, can't
2: say I wish a motherfucker would to a bear and have the bear contemplate his decision. <laughs> like,
3: <you> yeah, <laughs> the bear's gonna be it's like, not... <laughs> mm, all right, maybe I'm, uh, you're a bad motherfucker. I'm, I'm <laughs> never mind. Yeah. I wish you can I would. Yeah. I mean, I would. I mean. Yeah, there's was sorry, I'm all over the place today. But I was thinking, like, uh the last time I went in uh to the doctor to get my uh yearly checkups and the and the booster shots and stuff, I got one booster and I forget what it was for, probably tetanus. And um it burns a little bit when it goes in and then this older nurse that was helping me out, she's one of those no nonsense ladies who's like, you know, I'm like, Hey, how's it going? And I, I, you know, always refer to her by her name with a miss in front of it. You know, that's just kinda right. it's, it's oh kinda,
2: she's either a nurse or she works at an old diner.
3: Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. Or both. Yeah, those are, she yeah. probably has two. In this economy, she probably works both. Um, <laughs> but it's like Miss Irma. And, you know, she comes over and she's like, how you doing? How you doing, sweetie? Here you go, doing this thing. And she, she puts the thing. She's like, nah, that's it's going to burn a little bit. And I'm like, all right, thank you for telling me. She's like, yeah. And as she's doing it, it does burn. But, you know, I'm it's fine.
0: It's whatever, I'm handling
3: yeah. it. And because uh, it's, it's not a big, big needle. So I'm not too bothered. But it's, she starts telling me this story. She was like, yeah, I, I wish they told me this when I first got it. Because when I was a little girl, it, it was painful. And that woman, she did not tell me it was going to burn and it was traumatic. So it was right then and there. I was. She was probably 12, actually. And she was like, right then and there, I decided I was going to be a nurse so that no one else on my watch would feel that kind of pain
2: <laughs> when they got
3: this shot. And With I'm like
2: knowing ahead of time. I'm
3: like. I love your origin story, Miss Miss Irma. Ms. Irma. <laughs> <laughs> She's great. I love her. Um Yeah.
2: Oh and my then, god. Yeah. That's great. So
3: I what's our title today before I get into I do have a couple oh. of I'm bringing back news of the weird this week. Just, there was a few yes. it wasn't as depressing as last week. So um
2: Right. Um well this week in the in the theme of kind of blood and gore <laughs> a little bit of gore. It's not as gross as perhaps the dude that I did the story about a few episodes <laughs> the, the human, back,
3: the human garbage disposal. Yeah, the not, walking not, sarlacc not that bad. Pit.
2: But in the spirit of the macabre and Halloween.
3: Mm, of course, of We're,
2: course. Our title this week is A Bag of Bones.
3: Makes perfect sense.
2: Michael is in charge of the bones. <laughs> and I'm in charge of the bags. <laughs> Meaning, <laughs> Michael's going to talk about things that have been made with bones.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: I'm going to talk about things that have been made using human flesh.
0: <laughs>
3: You're going to talk about things that have been made with the bags. Under people's I mean, yeah.
2: eyes. <laughs> Whoopsies.
3: <laughs> but before we get into that, I've got a couple of little news of the weird items that yeah, just let's hear it. tickled my fancy. Um, the first one I'm calling, um, based on that Twitter account, I guess it's called, uh, this. you saying shit like this is why we're not allowed back in church. <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> a Louisiana pastor caught filming himself in a sexual act with two women on a church altar has yes. been denounced by the New Orleans Archbishop, who called his actions, quote, demonic. <laughs> 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 Archbishop Gregory Amund said on Friday that he has ordered the altar to be removed and burned and that the pastor, <laughs> Travis Clark, will never again serve in the Catholic ministry. Amand called Clark. Well, Clark's,
2: hold up. Hold I, I, up. He's never going to serve in the Catholic ministry well, again Well, it's, it's not...
3: It's not... Just that he had said. Well, we, hold on. Uh, okay,
2: finish. Okay, because I'm about to get twitchy. Amon
3: called Clark's actions deplorable and demonic in a video statement published by the Archdiocese on Friday. Quote, I am infuriated by his actions. When the details became clear, we had the altar removed and burned. I will consecrate a new altar tomorrow, uh, Amon said, according to Catholic News Agency, CNA. Clark was arrested on September 30th, along with uh, two dominatrixes in Saints Peter and Paul Roman Catholic Church in Pearl River. The three were discovered by a passerby who saw that the church lights were on later than usual. The altar had been fitted with stage lighting and several cameras, according to reports. (sighs) Along with the two women, Clark was charged with public obscenity, a felony in Louisiana that carries a sentence as high as three years in prison. He has been removed from his duties as a pastor in the church. Lady V, one of the two dominatrixes involved in the act, wrote in a statement posted to Twitter on Saturday that all parties involved in the act were consenting adults, which is... (laughs) I'm. am not gonna make that easy joke. It's too easy of a joke. Uh-huh, um, it's I, too easy.
2: <laughs> no, if it wasn't it's... consenting adults, he might still have a job. <laughs> That's where I'm going
3: with it. <laughs> I'm glad you said it. Um, I Fuck. understand. Quote: I understand that people may be upset by the situation, but that does not make this conduct illegal or criminal in any way. I would implore anyone seeking to pass judgment or direct their inner to direct their energy elsewhere. She wrote, adding that it is regrettable that she is being presented to the world as a criminal. Clark was ordained in 2013 and became the pastor of the Saints Peter and Paul Church in 2019. Last month, a former priest in the same church, Pat Wattingney, reportedly told Archbishop Amon that he had sent inappropriate texts to a local high school student where he had been a chaplain, according to a NOLA.com report. What has happened concerning Pat Wattingly and Travis Clark is unacceptable. It's sinful, and it cannot be tolerated, Amon said in a video statement. Let me be clear, both were removed from the ministry immediately and will never serve again in the Catholic ministry. I mean... It's about time they started paying attention to this kind of thing. I mean, I I get it for the pastor to have sex, but I mean, it's it's also like you know what the job was. You take you take your vows. You're not supposed to have sex, so it's like you're cheating, bro. Right. You can't expect to have a job if you fucking steal from the till. Um, right. You, you know.
2: But-, but also, I mean, if you're gonna do it, maybe choose a less
3: also, yeah, also. And and, and but, but to be but to be devil's advocate here. Location,
2: location, location. <laughs> that's
3: what I'm to say. I mean, they were clearly doing it for the views and if that's their point, then the location was <laughs> yeah. quite choice. Um.
2: <laughs> I bet these ladies have never been busier.
3: I mean, they're like, "Oh god, this is great advertising. Let's get that Instagram <laughs> yeah. money." Uh but, yeah, it's, it's um, you know, it's high time that the Catholic diocese began paying attention to things like that. But, oh, that's a whole other can of worms I don't want to open. So, uh, a nice counterbalance to that story is... Yeah. <laughs> With more than 4,200 votes, Republicans in one New Hampshire county nominated an unconventional candidate for sheriff, a self-described Satanist whose campaign slogan disparages the police.
2: Really? I was Since... hoping it would be an animal, but this is interesting.
3: <laughs> Since then, Aria DeMezzo, a transgender woman in her early 30s, has become a minor celebrity, and the target, of course, of online attacks, vandalism, including a homophobic slur, spray-painted on her car, and a write-in campaign to weaken her odds. DeMezzo, the lone Republican candidate for the Cheshire, uh, Cheshire County Sheriff for Cheshire County Sheriff in September's primary, believes most voters blindly checked the box next to her name. She only registered as Republican at the last second after concluding her bid to get uh, on the ballot as a libertarian, her preferred party would have required gathering signatures amid the coronavirus pandemic. Mm -hmm. Quote, anyone who takes a look at me knows pretty much right off the bat I'm clearly not a Republican, said Demizzo, who stands (laughs) over uh, six feet tall, sports fire engine red hair, and has tattoos on both arms, including one for the Greek letter pi and the word coexist. Definitely not a Republican. Um, She's looking to unseat Eli Rivera, a Democrat who has held the job in the county of more than uh, 76,000 since 2012. I'm just using the party infrastructure to run for office, she said. I was 100% upfront about who I am. I never hit any of it. Anyone who bothered to Google me would have found all this stuff out, and they would have seen the anti-cop things that I was posting all over social media. Demezzo, who unsuccessfully ran as a libertarian in the 2018 Sheriff's Race, said she hopes to attract voters on the left and right with campaign promises to support gun rights and limited government and combat police wrongdoing. Among her proposals is to have sheriff's deputies, quote, pull over police for harassing peaceful citizens, end quote. If her deputies don't want to police the police, she said, they can either quit or sit in the office and play video games. If the police <laughs> if the police were these fine, upstanding, honorable people just investigating crimes where there are victims and they were serving and protecting people. I wouldn't have an issue with that, she says. But that is not what they are doing, says DeMizzo, whose campaign signs include the phrase, fuck the police, and the symbol for anarchy <laughs> emblazoned over a sheriff's badge standing in for the A in Aria. DeMizzo said, as law enforcement, any of her own uh, deputies would be fired on the spot and perhaps charged with crimes for any brutality or misconduct. Currently, the sheriff oversees a department of 15 communications specialists, 13 court officers, 12 deputies, and two administrative staff. DeMizzo moved to the New Hampshire college town of Keene from Mississippi in 2018, and has garnered attention for her political stances ever since. She also ran unsuccessfully for Keene City Council in 2018 with the slogan "Eat the Rich" and a push to legalize <laughs> magic mushrooms. <laughs> I nice.
2: Kind of, I kind of like her. I'm gonna say. I like her. her. I dig I her. like what she's about. Um, That's fun.
3: She serves as the high priest of the Reformed Satanic Church, which is run from her home. The church doesn't believe in Satan, um, Demezzo said, but instead stands for individualism and volunteerism and opposes the god of the day, which she described in this case as the state. Despite hateful online comments and the vandalism, she's found residents in the college town, uh, known as a bastion for Bitcoin and libertarians, have mostly welcomed her campaign. By and large, the response has been overwhelmingly positive. She said, when I walk down the street, people cheer. They tell me they're going to vote for me. It's great. Since her primary victory, Demezzo has done a steady stream of interviews, Russian television crew even came to town, and voters have stopped by the pizza shop where she works to wish her well. <laughs> oh, nice. Very nice. I love that she exists. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Los Angeles, California, a man who dressed up as the Hulk when he smashed President Donald Trump's star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame last week, turned himself into Los Angeles police on Monday. Uh, James Lambert Otis, a 56-year-old activist, had done the same thing before, police say. Otis (laughs) was questioned and booked on suspicion of felony vandalism after police reviewed video footage of the incident that took place around 5.50 a.m. on Friday. Otis allegedly smashed the star with a pickaxe while he was dressed as the irascible Marvel hero, the Hulk. (laughs) <laughs> the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce spokesperson informed the Times on Friday that the damage to the, the plaque was over $3,000, which made the crime a felony and one President Trump can't afford to fix. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, was my own, that was my own addition. Uh, I like will, <laughs> Which is more debt. Uh, it will be up to the Chamber to again replace the star, just as it did in 2016 when Otis destroyed the mini-monument with a sledgehammer and pickaxe. That time, he was charged with one felony count of vandalism. Otis, who was not available for comment on Monday, told the Times back in 2016 that he had uh, had an open disdain for the then presidential candidate. I just sort of had enough with Trump's aggressive language toward women and his behavior, Otis said in regard to accusations of the president's sexual misconduct. Uh, uh, I personally had people in my own family who were victimized by sexual assault, and so it all became very personal, he said. In 2016, Otis was depressed uh, was dressed, excuse me, as a construction worker, complete with a hard hat and vest, while <laughs> while destroying the Hollywood Walk of Fame.
2: <laughs>
3: I kind of like him too. Um
2: Yeah. I like what he's about, I like it.
3: (laughs) Polly Cracker, a wildlife park has been forced to remove five newly adopted parrots from the public display after they started swearing at customers. (laughs) (laughs) Same. Bosses at Lincolnshire Wildlife Park said they accepted the new flock of birds on August 15th and the group taught each other to swear while in quarantine together. The park's chief executive officer, uh, Steve Nichols, said the naughty antics have made the staff laugh, which only encouraged the birds. But swift action had to be taken after the parrots began shouting profanities in front of the guests. And then laughing about it, reports Lincolnshire Live. He said, For the last 25 years, we always have taken in parrots that have sometimes had a bit of a blue language issue, and we have really gotten used to that. Every now and then, then, you'll get one that swears, and it's always funny. We always find it very comical, and, and, and they do so they swear at you, but just by coincidence we took in five in the same week and because they were all quarantined together it meant that one room was just full of swearing birds. <laughs> <laughs> the more imagine Disney's tiki room that way.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, <The, laughs> I
3: love it. The more they I like swear, what they're
2: about too.
3: <laughs> the, more, the more they swear the more you usually laugh which then triggers them to swear more. The, uh, the park chief said they learn to swear and laugh at each other swearing uh, leading to something akin to an old uh, working man club scenario with 20 minutes, within 20 minutes of them being on display to the public, there were reports of the parrots swearing at a customer. Uh, <laughs> and while visitors saw the funny side, the team were worried because they had a weekend coming up and were expecting lots of young children. Despite wanting to give people some lighthearted relief, a decision was made to put the birds where they couldn't be heard before children arrived. Uh, They will now be put into separate groups to discourage the behavior. (laughs) Mr. Nichols added, at least if they do swear, it's not as bad as three or four of them all blasting it out at once.
2: (laughs) I hope in my movie, all the birds end up swearing. That it just spreads out, and <laughs> wherever those birds go,
0: they teach the other birds I to just, swear.
3: I love it. I think it's hilarious. I love it. Go yeah. fuck yourself. Go fuck your fuck you. <laughs> yeah, fuck fuck you. <laughs>
2: Motherfucker. Fuck your mother. <laughs> fuck your mother. <laughs>
3: I love it so much. So that, those are the, I just had a few items this week.
2: That was good. I like it.
3: The news of the weird. So Thank you. Those were fun. Thank you. Thank you. I had a
2: dream about birds swearing. This was not recent, but (laughs) it was like last month, I think, and I woke up and I was laughing because in my dream... Um, it was a friend of mine had given me birds, which is weird that I would accept birds. Like fucking no, I'm not. I don't want to take care of birds. But in my dream, I thought it was a good idea. But then the birds, all they ever did was swear at each other because of who I got them from. And then I was like, oh well, if, of course they swear like that. Look at who I got them from. <laughs> and then I started laughing. Was I in my the dream one that gave me the birds up.
3: in the dream? Did I give you the birds in the dream?
2: No, it wasn't you.
3: Okay. I mean, I was. Al- me. I'm just. I consider I'll tell myself you a later, and it'll
2: make perfect
3: sense. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! All uh, right. Well, let's get into our topics, I guess. Um, okay. So, I. So, tell
2: us about bones. Well,
3: so uh, there are, in Europe especially, and some in South America, there are a surprising number of places uh, called ossuaries. If you're not familiar with that word, it basically means a, a repository for bones, but in such a way that the place is either built with bones or the detailing is crafted out of human bones. Now, they're often crypts or. Um, or sanctuaries of some kind. They're they're usually put in some in in on reverent display in, in memorial. Sometimes the bones have just been moved en masse from from mass graves when the when <laughs> cemeteries needed the room, usually during plagues or whatnot. And then they just store them somewhere. And then someone comes along later and goes, "No, love, we need to make this pretty because we can't just <laughs> right. have piles of bones in here."
2: What if instead of just a pile, we made it into like a beautiful fountain? I
3: mean, you know, you work with what you got. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, But the practice didn't start as necessarily, like, there. there's a lot of evidence to suggest that it started as um, more of a thing you did with enemies' remains <laughs> than mm. you did for the remains mm-hmm. of your own loved ones. And it's just got, over time, uh, tra- transitioned into being, you know, almost a kind of... Um, Old world religious practice. So most of my, so I'm going to actually discuss. Uh, I think I've got six different ossuaries around the world that I'm going to talk about oh, their okay. little history, and and uh, they, these are places you can visit. Uh, you can uh, frequently, uh, um, you know, they lay out pictures uh, frequently or whatever, and I and I have been to at least one of them, and which is really cool. We'll talk about it now. My information, my. Uh, primary sources are Atlas Obscura, specifically an article with them called "Bone House," a definitive guide to the world's ossuaries, and a book called "Empire de la Mort" um, or "Empire of Death," a cultural history of ossuaries and charnel houses by Paul Kudinaris. I'm probably pronouncing that name incorrectly, so let me spell it for you: K-O-U-D-O-U-N-A-R-I-S. Um, it's a lovely book, by the way. I have a copy, and it's this gorgeous like, coffee table-sized book with all these just gorgeous, gorgeous pictures. Now, uh, bear in mind that uh, in some of these cases, while we think of ossuaries as being old world in at least one of these ossuaries, some of the remains are far more recent. So, let us begin well, these are my personal favorite ossuaries. I mean, I never never my <laughs> Yeah, I, you yeah. get to
2: talk about what you want. That's that's yeah. great.
3: But I encourage all of you to go to Atlas Obscura and read the full article because there are like something like 20 or 30 of them all covered in detail with glorious pictures. Uh mm. and the book itself is also wonderful if you're if it's a wonderful boutique gift item for anyone in in your life that just has that gothic sensibility like I do. So, uh my fir- first up is the Skull Tower of Nice in IS Now... Collecting the skulls of vanquished foes and using them as building material was de rigueur for ancient barbarian warlords. <laughs> this ancient practice, though, survived in some cultures well into historic times. Uh, Kele Kula, literally Skull Tower in Nice, Serbia, was built by Turkish general Hershey Pasha in 1809. Using the skulls of defeated Serb rebels and it represents one of the most recent and best preserved examples of this particular tradition. The year 1806 marked the turning point in the course of the first Serbian uprising against the Ottoman Empire, a very short-lived empire that only lasted from, like, I mean, it's like a, this uprising only lasted from 04 uh, uh, to 13, 1804 to 13. Uh, the, uh, out <laughs> like 04? Oh four? Oh 04, yeah. Oh 04. Like like oh I was four. really old. Yeah, just, just <laughs> oh 04, like before we even knew that you could have four numbers. Um <laughs> Uh, no, so, uh, uh, so sorry, let me start over the year. 1809 marked the turning point in the course of the first Serbian uprising against the Ottoman Empire. The outnumbered rebel army faced uh, a 36,000 strong force of Turkish imperial guards near the strategically important southern city of Nice. Rather than surrender or retreat, they decided to put up a desperate last stand at Segar Hill. Faced with imminent annihilation, the rebel commander, uh, Stevan Sindelik, in an act of desperation, fired a shot into a gunpowder keg. At the fully stocked gunpowder room, blowing up his entire army as well as wiping out a nice fraction of the enemy soldiers who were already flooding the rebel trenches. Now, deeply angered by the rebel forces' actions, the Turkish commander, Hirshit Pasha, decided to teach a grim lesson to the Serbian nation. The bodies of the dead rebels were mutilated, their skins were peeled off, their decapitated heads stuffed up with straw, and sent to the imperial court in Istanbul as proof of Turkish victory. The skulls were used as building blocks for a tower built by the main road at the entrance of the city, a warning to the local populace of an impending fate any, to any potential future rebels. In total, 952 skulls were used. In its original form, the tower stood 15 feet high and 13 feet wide. Skulls were arranged in 56 rows with 17 skulls in each row and each, uh, at each side of the tower. The skull of rebel commander Stefan Sindelic was placed at the top. This gruesome edifice left a deep scar in the Serbian national psyche. However, it failed. At its purpose. The Serbs rebelled again in 1815, this time successfully driving off the Turks and winning their independence in 1830. In the years immediately following the building of the tower, the families of the deceased rebels chiseled away some of the skulls in order to give their loved ones proper burials. Uh, today, only 58 skulls in total remain. The authorities of Serbia in 1892 built a chapel around the tower to preserve this unique monument representing the uh, nation's bravery and its suffering. The skull of Stefan Sindelik is also on display at the chapel. Mm -hmm. The crypts of Santa Maria della Concesione. In 1775, the Marquis de Sade <laughs> wrote of it: quote, "I have never seen anything more striking." I should do that with a French accent. "I have never seen anything more striking." Uh, <laughs> granted, this kind of thing was really to his tastes. Now, Mark yeah. Twain also wrote about it in his 1869 book Innocence Abroad*. When Twain Jack's voice. <laughs> Mark Twain wrote about it in his 1869 book, *Innocents Abroad, (laughs) when Twain asked one of the monks uh, what would happen when he died, the monk responded, we must all lie here at last. And lie there they do. Some 4,000 Capuchin friars who died between 1528 and 1870 are still lying, hanging, and generally adorning the Santa Maria della Causazione Crypt in Rome. In 1631, the Capuchin, the Capuchin friars, so-called because of the capuche or hood attached to their religious habit, left the friary of Saint Bonaventure near the Trevi Fountain and came to live at Santa Maria de la Causacion, of which only the church and crypt now remain. They were ordered by Cardinal Antonio Barberini, the Pope's brother and a member of the Capuchin order, to bring the remains of the deceased friars along with them to their new home so that all the Capuchin friars might be in one place together. Uh, Rather than simply burying the the remains of their dead brethren, the monks decorated the walls of the crypts with their bones as a way of reminding themselves that death could come at any time. A plaque in the crypt reads, What you are now, we once were. What we are now, you shall be.
2: I walked by that on that haunted tour. Yeah, yeah? Yes, yeah, we went by there, um, and they talked about it and how, like, um, the monks would go out to... And basically, to collect people who had died in the middle of the night, mm, and, mm. and and uh, bring them back or whatever. But um, yeah, we walked right by there. That's and they, so cool. Was the whole thing about it—it it was really cool. That's so.
3: It's so. a really cool-looking thing. I mean, it's it's very it's. <laughs> now the ossuary contains a crypt of skulls, a crypt of yep. leg bones, and perhaps the oddest, a crypt of pelvises. Mummified monks were dressed in friars' clothes and hung from the walls and ceiling. With the addition of electricity. Light fixtures were incorporated into some of the hanging mm-hmm. monks, bringing a new meaning to the phrase eternal light. A particular <laughs> a particular highlight of the crypt is the skeleton enclosed in an oval of bones holding a scythe and scales, tools made entirely out of, you guessed it, bones. The crypt is said to have been the inspiration for Sedlik Ossuary in the Czech Republic, which we will get to. Uh next up is the Melnick Chapel of Bones. Now, for the Bohemian queens and princesses, it was a fucking raw deal. <laughs> <laughs> for the other fifteen thousand skeletons in this crypt, it was an upgrade. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the crypt under the Saint Peter and Paul's Church in Melnick was intended to be a holy burial ground for Bohemia's royal ladies, but in the night, excuse me, in the 1520s, a plague epidemic swept through the area, creating a huge demand, obviously, for burial ground. The corpses which had been occupying the cemeteries surrounding the church were promptly dug up and some 15,000 corpses were cleaned and dumped into the vault. It was basically just a pile of bones and in the 1780s, when ossuaries were declared a health risk, the vault was bricked up and forgotten about for some 230 years until a Czech anthropologist by the name of Gendrik Matyega decided to take a look for himself. Matyega is considered one of the fathers of Czech Anthropology and spent a considerable amount of his time studying skeletons, crypts, and ossuaries throughout then Czechoslovakia. In the 1910s, Matiega reopened the entrance to the crypt and began assembling the bones into his very own ossuary. Arranged with a literate theology, as uh, Matiega put it, he stacked the bones into orderly piles and meaningful patterns. The largest pile can be seen directly in front of the entrance and is 15 feet square and over 6 feet high, and is believed to contain roughly 10,000 skeletons. Matiega arranged the other 5,000 skeletons into a large cross of bones decorated with a palm frond, skulls into a heart shape representing love, and most notably built a tunnel of leg bones to represent Christ's resurrection. Professor, anthropologist, and religious man, Matiega definitely had a gothic streak. As a kind <laughs> of signature, Matiega wrote the Latin inscription, Ese Mors," Behold Death, spelled out, In bones. Today you can still visit the Ossuary as well as the lovely church above it. It is open daily, except for Mondays. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Oh God, there's so many Polish and Eastern European words. I'm sure I'm mangling all of them, so I apologize to any of our listeners who know better uh, which is probably most of you, uh, Kaplica Kasiek, the Chapel of Skulls. In 1776, while America was declaring its independence from England and bodies were piling up in the American Revolutionary War, a priest and grave, uh, a priest and a gravedigger in the small Polish town of Szerzna, or, excuse me, it's C-Z-E-R-M-N-A, Sermna, Sermna a kilometer I think kilometer- that sounds great. Sermna <laughs> it's pronounced Sur-na-ma. with that same upward inflection. Sermna a kilometer to the north a kilometer to the north of Kuduo George Kudodrod fuck a kilometer to the north of Kudoa Droge. We're also busy <laughs> piling up bodies, but for
2: a very. Just about how you say <laughs> it. If you sound it. confident, people who know what it sounds like will be like. Well, maybe is, that what, it is, is, what that, it is. Is that a
3: different one that I didn't know about?
2: Within the <laughs> modest-looking
3: Saint Bartholomew's Church, also called the Captica Saziek, there are skulls and bones of over three thousand people decorating the ceiling and walls and arranged in various patterns, mostly in a repeating crossed bones, Jolly Roger style. With another twenty-one thousand skeletons stuffed in the church crypt below. Uh, it's great, so if anything, you know, if a piece of wall goes missing, they have more material to work with. That's uh, right. Coll- uh, collected <laughs> it's pro- by... It's
2: problem-solving s-
3: situation. <laughs> collected by Czech priest uh, Václav Tomasek and J. Longa, the local gravedigger, it took the pair some 18 years, from 1776 to 1794, to collect, clean, and arrange uh, the as many as 24,000 human skeletons that pack the church. While the majority of the skeletons are stacked in a 16-foot-deep crypt beneath the church, the rest beautifully displayed in what Tomasek saw as a sanctuary of silence. The two had plenty to choose from in terms of raw materials. The Thirty Years' War, the Seven Years' War, the numerous other skirmishes between Catholic, Hussite, Protestants, Poles, Czech, and Germans that bordered the area left mass graves aplenty, not to mention the cholera epidemics that routinely killed hundreds. Tomasek apparently found the mass graves by watching where local dogs went to dig up bones. Uh. I mean, keen eye. As the two uncovered and cleaned the thousands of skeletons, the priest and gravedigger set aside skulls of interest for display in the church. Today, the skulls are still displayed and include a Tartar warrior skull, a Surna mayor, and his, w- and his wife, skulls with bullet holes, a skull Swiss-cheesed by syphilis, and even the skull of a giant. Besides these special skulls are Out those... of all of
2: those, I want to see the Swiss-cheesed syphilis one. That's oh, the one I want to see. Oh, have never
3: seen a skull ravaged by syphilis, it is, oh my God. Blah, 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 blah. Um, now, besides these special skulls are those of the priest and the grave digger, digger, the, the grave digger themselves presiding proudly over the chapel of skulls they created, and now call their final resting place a trap door to the crypt below can be opened to reveal the other 21,000 skeletons stacked below, there is a recording in the church that explains the history of the chapel, but so far it is only available in Polish, Czech, and German. Unfortunately, no photos are now allowed inside. The tomb of Enrique Torres Bellon. Off the dusty road between Lake Titicaca and the former Incan capital of Cusco, Peru, is the unassuming town of Lampa. Founded in the 16th century, the Spanish colonial outpost is most known for its more modern addition a bizarre tomb attached to its historic church. The small town has a number of unique sites, from a working chinchilla farm on its outskirts to intricate mosaics in its central plaza. And what stands out, but what stands out most, is its enormous colonial church, the Iglesia Santiago Apostol, connected to the <laughs> that church. That was really good. I like that. I have no idea if I said it right. Um, I know I said Iglesia right because, I mean, I listened, I, I remember. Julio. You know, Julio Iglesia Uh, connected to the church (laughs) (laughs) connected to the church is Enrique Torres Belon's freaky mausoleum a silo of bones capped by an aluminum replica of Michelangelo's Pieta Engineer and politician Enrique Torres-Bellon, one of Lampa's most famous sons, designed and built the tomb in the mid-20th century so that he could rest in peace along with his wife, surrounded by the earthly remains of the city's forebears. The otherworldly tribute is lined with hanging human skeletons and hundreds of skulls exhumed from the town cemetery and the crypts beneath the church. At the bottom is a black marble cross whose lighting exaggerates the eerie shadows cast by the macabre wall hangings. (laughs) I get so fucking... Sounds like a great living room. Um, Well, an ironic living room. (laughs) Uh, Topping the dome over the carefully arranged bones is a replica of the Pieta, arguably Michelangelo's most famous sculpture. The original Renaissance masterpiece is housed in St. Peter's Basilica in Vatican City, but anyone wanting to see another copy of the sculpture won't have to travel far. The town hall contains another exact replica in plaster. It was supposed to be destroyed after the aluminum sculpture was complete, but the town decided to keep it instead. Next, we have Saint Florian Aujouer, it's Austria. Now, okay. calling Saint Florian Aujouer the personal charnel house of Austrian composer Anton Bruckner is a bit of a stretch. <laughs> <laughs> it makes it sound like he killed them all and just surrounded himself with bones while he was composing his massive symphonies. Um, <laughs> He's
2: very busy,
3: very busy, ma- very man. Busy. But that's not—it's not true. Um, <laughs> Bruckner. <laughs> was only 13 years old uh, when his father died, and he was then sent to St. Florian Monastery. Now there, he began. He fell in love with the Saint, the beautiful St. Florian pipe organ, often playing during church services. Throughout his life, it was his favorite instrument, and when he died, it made sense to bury him beneath the monastery and the instrument he loved. Although the crypt now serves as a memorial to Bruckner, the charnel was not created for him. Instead, the rows and rows of skulls and bones happened to frame the later tomb uh, that was built in 1896. The remains of 6,000 people are used in the creation of the rows of stacked skulls in Saint Florian's crypt. Uh, according to the most to most accounts, the skulls belong to early Christians who wished to be buried close to Saint Florian, a Roman martyr and the patron saint of protection against fire and flood. Hmm. Next, we have the Hallstatt Charnel House. The town of Hallstatt looks like the kind of Austrian town that The Sound of Music might have been filmed in. On a beautiful, forested mountain, next to a perfectly blue lake filled with charming 19th century houses, the town is a perfect vision of cheer. Except, of course, for the room filled with skulls. Behind the Hallstatt Catholic <laughs> except, Church. <near> the... <laughs> except
2: for the skull room.
3: Everyone has a skeleton in their closet. Um, <laughs> some behind, of, some of them have a very
2: large closet. <laughs>
3: we just call it an ossuary to make it more respectable
2: <laughs> this is my ossuary
3: <laughs> it's time to come out of the ossuary people um <laughs> Behind the Hallstatt Catholic Church, near the 12th century St. Michael's Chapel, in a small and lovingly cared for cemetery, is the Hallstatt Benhouse, also known as the Charnel House. A small building, it is tightly stacked with over 1,200 skulls. Because Hallstatt finds itself in such a lovely location, it also finds itself in very short supply of burial grounds. In the 1700s, the church began digging up corpses to make way for the newly dead. The bodies, which had been buried for uh, some of which had only been buried for 10 to 15 years, were then stacked inside the charnel house. Lest this all sound overly callous to the memory of the new dead, uh, there is actually a charm to the whole affair that Hallstatt can't seem to escape, even with a room full of skulls. Once the skeletons were exhumed and properly bleached in the sun, because that's part of the process, the family members would stack the bones next to their nearest kin. In 1720, a tradition began of painting the skulls with symbolic decorations as well as dates of birth and death so that the deceased would be remembered properly, even if they no longer had an actual grave. Of the 1200 skulls, some 610 of them were lovingly decorated with an assortment of symbols, laurels for valor, roses for love, and so on. The ones from the 1700s are painted with thick, dark garlands, while the newer ones from the 1800s and on bear Brighter floral styles Though this practice Has been dying out Since the 1960s There is a much more Recent skull In the Bain house Beside the cross With a gold tooth uh, is, uh, Beside the cross With a gold tooth Is the skull Of a woman Who died as recently As 1983 Her last wow. request Was to be put In the charnel Her skull Was entered in the, uh, Into the ossuary In 1995 The very last bone To date To be placed there
2: Wow!
3: I want to be put in a ossuary now. Um, <laughs> it's either that or be mummified, or or cremated and shot into space, so that billions oh, that of years. Oh, that one sounds of, fun. Yeah, that one. What do you fun.
2: think about people painting your skull? Like, would you? What would you want them to paint?
3: Uh, I want to give them free reign to paint whatever they felt. Like, you know, they they knew me, and like, come paint and paint what you think, paint your best memory of me. And so, I, I think right. that because I'm not, I'm not gonna fucking. Or see you
2: it. could be like, hey, I know some really great artists, family members. So tell this artist what you want them to paint. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, I should get a specific yeah. commissioned artist to be like, be prepared right. to take a lot of. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, if that's what you're gonna do, it's up to you. But I would just recommend. Yeah,
0: wow.
3: Yeah, isn't that' cool. Um, yeah. The Sedlec Ossuary, which I mentioned above, the forty thousand to seventy thousand skeletons within Sedlec uh, Ossuary. I said Sedlec, and it's sedlic Ossuary, aka Kostnice Ossuary, Bainhaus, is the Czech in the Czech Republic um, welcomes you quite literally with open arms. <laughs> oh no. Known to most as the Bone Church, it displays some of the world's most <laughs> macabre art. <laughs> the Bone Church. Crazy. I mean, it, it sounds like it's going to compete with that Catholic church in Louisiana. Am I right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, you mean Bone Church, not Boned Church.
2: Right. Um, or known Boner to most church, as the. <laughs> which is different. <laughs>
3: In addition to a splendid bone chandelier, composed of almost every bone in a human body, the ossuary displays two large bone chalices, four Baroque bone candelabras, six enormous bone pyramids, two bone monstroses, a vessel used to display the Eucharist—the Eucharist—, uh, the Eucharist um, A family crest in, you guessed it, bone and skull candle holders. Uh, Skull candle holders. (laughs) Right. Festively looping chains of bone are hung throughout like crepe paper at a birthday party. (laughs) It's fucked up. It's crazy, but I love it. I like
2: to think, though, this was a team effort. Like, there was a team of people designing this that came up with it together. I
3: think so. Sedlik Ossuary has a long history, beginning in the 13th century when the abbot of Sedlik Monastery, Abbot Henry, brought a handful of earth back from a journey to the grave of the Lord in Jerusalem. He scattered this holy soil across the Sedlik Cemetery, securing its place as one of the most desired burial sites for people all over Bohemia and the surrounding countries. Everyone wanted to be buried in that handful of the holy land, and more than 30,000 were. But it wasn't long before they simply didn't have enough room for everybody to rest in peace, and the bodies were moved to a crypt to make room for the fresher dead. In 1870, a local woodcarver— I uh,
2: wonder—sorry. Mm, go ahead. Would it make more sense to just put the new people in the crypt?
3: No, because they're the penguins, and they want on the consecrated ground. Like, they're like, oh. no. Nah. You know what I mean? It's like—they're it's like, it's, the, they're the, they're the, they're the ones you have to worry about because they've got living relatives that can, <laughs> like, right. give you a bad Yelp review.
2: Yeah, it just is a lot of moving bodies.
3: It is, but I mean, it's yeah. I mean, but what else are they doing?
2: That's true. That's true. Um, in 1870, it's industry and it's good for the economy. Let's good. keep it going.
3: <laughs> what do you? I'm a bone mover. All right. Um, I mean, that's a talent. Do you pass it down with the yeah. family, or did you go to school for that? What is it? Uh, I have a BA in BM.
2: Yeah, am <laughs> a bone mover that's also what the dominatrix calls herself
3: <laughs> dim bones dim bones in 1870 a local wood carver by the name of uh, Frantisek Rent was employed for the dark task of artistically (laughs) arranging the thousands of bones. Rent came up with the Bone Church's stunning chandelier, as well as the amazing Schwarzenberg Schwarzenberg coat of arms, which includes a raven pecking at the severed head of a Turk, all made of human bone. Rent was responsible for bleaching all the bones in the ossuary in order to give uh, the room a uniform look. I mean, you got to think about, you know, your color scheme. Right. His artist's signature is still on the wall today, naturally, in his medium of choice. Boon.
2: <laughs> Boon. <laughs> and,
3: and let I me think... guess
2: what that's made out of. Boon. Boon. Yes. It's made out of um, human bone. The Sedlick, uh
3: the Sedlick Argyre is probably the most dramatic of all that I've seen because there are just so many objects made of bones. Most of the other ossuaries uh, I've mentioned, the bones are stacked in certain ways or they form crosses, but here it's like, oh, chandelier made of bone. Like, it looks like at first blush, it's going to remind you of something out of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> right. But you just have to bear in mind this was an act of reverence and like those, it's not like the the, the architect or interior designer, I don't know what you'd call someone, like the bone setter. Um <laughs> Uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a really, maybe it's, I don't know, maybe it's what retired chiropractors do. Uh, chiropractors do. Maybe that's their, the next stage is they go and build ossuaries. But, um, but it was an act of reverence. So it's not like these people killed them all. They were like, you know, we've got to move the bones to make room, um, because there's only so much earth.
0: <laughs> and, yeah.
3: And the dead far outnumber the living. So why not, why not use them for building materials in a way that kind of, you know, uh, reminds people, hey. Uh, good time right. off your high horse. <laughs> so, uh, last and not certainly not least, my personal favorite because Brandon and I have been there the Paris Catacombs. Yes. Now, the catacombs are really cool. If, if anybody, if you ever find yourself in uh, Paris, and, and I hope you do because it's a fucking magical city, I mean, it's so great. Uh, it's probably one of my favorite places on earth, and not just because I'm, you know, uh, <laughs> not just because I'm an otsy snob. I just think it's a really fun city to walk around in and get to know yeah. things, and it's just a fun city just built to have adventures Great
2: in. water I've seen.
3: Yeah, great water, great, like, I just love everything about, everything about it. Um, so, you can visit the catacombs, they're open, but of course, the catacombs go on and on and on and on, and only a very small fraction of them are open to the public at any given time, uh, because they want to preserve it as long as they can, and, you know, we had the choice when we were there, this is the same trip that Brandon proposed to me on, Mm-hmm. And uh, just, a, you know, two years ago, almost this week. And uh, while we were there, we decided thought we, we, we have to go see the catacombs. I mean, we just fucking have to. But we can either go there and wait in line for two to three hours to get in and see a small portion of it. Or we could drop some cash, which, you know, we were prepared to do because this is a special trip. Um, and we could hire a tour guide to take us alone into mm. the catacombs and see a lot of areas that the general public don't have access to. Um, and that, that so we sounds,
2: that doesn't just sound like it, that is a horror movie.
3: Well, I will tell you, uh, we did it, and I was like, This is hilarious. The person just showed up to our hotel in the lobby, that was the arrangement. And then uh, her name was Leon, and she was really cool. She looked like the girl in, uh, in the original version of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo.
0: <laughs> mm, okay, okay, and she
3: had been, um, so there's, uh, I forget what they call them, uh, but there's a there's a word in French for people that are obsessed with the catacombs and who actually try to go live down there or spend a lot of time down there. They try to dig illegally to find new entrances to it all the time because it goes on for hundreds of miles. Um, we haven't even explored all of it yet, and uh, so some of these people, you know, once you know that. <laughs> Uh, when they, when the time comes to, you know, come to the surface, they decide to get, you know, legitimate jobs and go. Oh well, fuck! I'll just be a tour guide. So what they, the service they provide is legal. Like where they're taking, you know, just select groups of tourists, they are allowed to take them, but the general public is not. So it's like it's just, it's like the special, it's like the uh, right. first class ticket, if you will. But it's a much longer. So we were down there for the better part of four hours, uh, searching wow. huge portions of the Ojai. And it's of course, the the is. Nerding. Well, and the ossuaries of the Paris catacombs only comprise a small fraction of the actual tunnels. Most of the tunnels have many other purposes, but there's a there's this kingdom of bones down there. But even even the ossuary is off limits, except for a small portion of that to the public. And we got to see pretty much all of it, all of the ossuaries that were then accessible. Some parts aren't because areas have collapsed. But it was a really fucking cool experience. And Leon was awesome. She was a little uh, she was standoffish in a very very Parisian way at first. (laughs) (laughs) Very nice, very knew what she was doing, but she could tell he's two fucking Americans, you know, and who could blame her? But once we were like, you know, we started, we spoke enough French. Uh, to, like, really go, oh, sure. So she, she felt very comfortable with us. And once, I, you know, she saw how reverent we were uh, in there. Because yeah. it is, it's hard not to be reverent. Like, you have to be a special kind of dick not to, like, yeah. just be humbled by the experience. Because you are surrounded by bones. And at any time, they're as close to you as the screen of this computer is to me now. There is no, there are no ropes up. There is right. nothing. There is nothing but the honor system stopping you from fucking putting your hands all over shit. And, yeah. even, and some people do just fucking take bones and <laughs> spirit them away. But people still go down there and like will leave roses in front of certain things and and the 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 bones and there is something like, God I mean there's ninety thousand skeletons down there, total or the bones of ninety thousand yeah. people which works out to being almost like five million or so I don't know the math whatever but it's a lot of fucking bones and that's yeah. just the ones they they that's just an estimate because you know they can't count them anymore I mean they're structural there there are load bearing piles of bones that they can't access, <laughs> and um. But you know they have they came from several different cemeteries, not just Les Innocents. And so you know you go to certain areas and they'll have stone carved plaques up saying this is these are the remains from Les, in, uh, Les Innocents and this is the one from uh, you know this cemetery, or Les Tombes, or whatever. And it's really fucking cool. And it, I mean, it's just God the quiet down there too. Oh my God, as someone particularly sensitive to sound, the quiet in the Paris catacombs. I get, yeah. I get why people want to live down there, and I think I'd probably it wouldn't take me long to become one of those people. <laughs> <laughs> as she was, as Leon was walking us to uh, the the subway station to to get on and get to the catacombs. Uh, she was showing us. She'd walk by, and she's like, "You see that? Uh, you see that uh, that tent there? The the tent? Uh, there was like a tent, like it looked like it a homeless person lived there." She's like, "There's a good chance that if we lifted that up, there'd be a hole under there that someone had been oh. digging." And while we were in the catacombs, she showed us. She's like, "Oh, that's new! Look at that little uh, someone just has moved a stone and found another way in." So yeah, cool. Here you were walking through where uh, a tunnel where someone has dug, dug illegally. <laughs> I was like, "Oh, this is so fucking right. cool!" So um. So to, wow. to to jump into the written portion of the story so uh, in 2004 Parisian police were assigned to do a training exercise in a previously uncharted part of the catacombs of Paris beneath the Palais de Charlotte or the, excuse me the Palais de Chalot. entering the catacombs through a drain officers first came across a sign that read building site no access <laughs> <laughs> And a bit further in... And they in, were like,
2: oh, really? Like, yeah,
3: why? why is it in marker? Um, <laughs> uh, and a, a this bit... is in
0: pink Sharpie. I don't know.
3: <laughs> and a bit further in, they found a camera that actively recorded images of those who passed. As the officers approached the camera, a recording of dogs barking triggered. Uh, was triggered. Uh, the police descended deeper into the tunnels and discovered a 500-square-meter cavern with a fully-equipped cinema. It included a giant screen, projection equipment, chairs, and a handful of films, from film lore classics to recent thrillers. Someone had turned this abandoned underground cavern into a secret amphitheater. Aside from this, in the next room, police discovered a fully stocked bar and restaurant, complete with tables and chairs. The discovery left police befuddled, not to mention the professional installation of electricity and three phone lines. <laughs> I mean, you know what? Someone yeah. had, you know, and this, I just love it. Three days later, police returned with experts from the French Board of Electricity to try and figure out where the power was coming from. The cables had been cut and a note lying on the floor which read, Do not try to find us. <laughs> <laughs> and then organ music surfacing from deep below. I, <laughs> <laughs> I just wished I da. would. <laughs>
2: da, 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 da. <laughs> right. um, Embraced into the Phantom of the Opera for right, some reason right. It's real weird, but it, it, the point was made.
3: Be great <laughs> if all the films that were down in the little amphitheater were like ironic, like uh, Sunset, a love story, or <laughs> <laughs> or Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow, like
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right.
3: Um, quarry tunnels have existed on the outskirts of the uh, of Paris since Roman times. The limestone mm-hmm. in these quarries uh, quarries built Paris uh, as we know it today, and eventually helped the City expand to the point where the quarries were directly underneath the busy metropolis. Some 200 miles of labyrinthian tunnels are believed to exist. Believed. There could be more. Uh, oh depending on gosh. who you ask, it could be as many as 400 miles of tunnels down there. Despite the vast length of the tunneled underground world, only a small section of it is open to the public. This tiny portion known as Denfert-Rochereau auguerie or more popular, popularly as just the catacombs, has become one of the top tourist attractions in Paris. The popular site houses the skeletal remains of some six to seven million former Parisians. I don't. I think that number's got to be wrong. I think it's it's six to seven million bones from ninety thousand skeletons. I got you. I, yeah. I, that's what I was told. But I mean, maybe this guy knows better. Um, not all areas. Maybe of the it catacombs, depends on
2: like what area, right? So maybe directly under where you were in that area. Yeah, may, maybe, then, maybe. Oh, like for the whole. I don't know.
3: Maybe. Um, uh, Now, not, of course, as I said, not all areas of the catacombs are open to the public. Back in the late 18th century, cemeteries were becoming overpopulated. Um, uh, So popular burial sites such as Les Innocents were so stuffed with the dead that it led to improper burials, open graves, mass graves, and unearthed corpses. Neighbors Mm -hmm. began getting sick with infectious fumes due to the unhealthy conditions of the cemetery there were people that were living next door who would go down into their wine cellars like or their root cellars and a root cellar just means that it's an earth wall that's not been yeah. not been uh, um slated over or anything like that and they would find like oh it's the erosion is causing corpses to come through the fucking wall poltergeist style great so there were a lot of complaints Fun. in the area and it was becoming a health concern and so the uh, the 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 powers that be were like we got to move that shit well we have all these empty fucking tunnels underground let's use them yeah. Um, so now, Les Innocents was not the only cemetery that was condemned. Uh, many other graveyards were becoming overpopulated, causing problems for the inhabitants of Paris, with tons of empty quarries, police and priests alike, discreetly moved the bones to the renovated section of the tunnel over the period between 1787 and 1814. So this went on for generations, like they've had yeah. them having to slowly move the bones as discreetly as possible. But of course, you know, if you didn't live close to cemeteries and knew how awful it was, people were sort of just a offended at the idea of the dead being yeah. disturbed, but I was like, what about the living? Um, yeah, but
2: the living are, like, real disturbed right now.
3: Yeah, like, <laughs> real disturbed. Like, they're becoming the dead. Um yeah as some notable people were buried in those crowded cemeteries, it is likely that their bones were transferred to the catacombs as well. Some of the prominent Frenchmen whose bones might just be placed in the catacombs are Charles Perrault, famous for Little Red Riding Hood, Puss in Boots, Mm -hmm. and Cinderella, jean de Fontaine, known for the fables, Uh, Simone Vuette, the painter, Salomon de Brosse, the architect who designed Luxembourg Palace in Paris, and François Girardon, the sculptor. The catacombs became a popular attraction for royal families and people of importance but by 1867, the area was then finally open to a curious public. Due to their old age, the quarries, not part of the official catacombs, have been deemed unsafe by Parisian officials. Nevertheless, the size and length of the tunnels make it difficult to keep secret societies, thieves, artists, and curious public from entering the dangerous network. <laughs> and restaurateurs,
2: and,
3: <laughs> and cinemas, <laughs> and bars. <laughs> I mean, how fucking cool is that to have an underground bar? I love it. Um, in the 1980s, a movement was dedicated to the exploration of the tunnels. After the discovery, of a secret of the secret cinema, Patrick Alk, a photographer close to the group responsible, said the discovery was a shame, but not the end of the world. There are dozens of other meeting places just like the one the police discovered in the mysterious labyrinth. He concluded saying, you guys have no (laughs) idea what's down there. Um, (laughs) And it's true. Now, due to vandalism and the theft of several skulls in recent years, the catacombs were closed from October 2009 through December of the same year, with the reopening and this is true, uh, security of the site has tightened significantly. And so you're not allowed to, like, take purses or bags or anything Mm. that can carry. Because, I mean, like, people have straight up gone in there and just, like, popped a bone in the duffel bag and brought it up but now you have to it's like a full thing you have to go through a metal detector and you have to be patted down um yeah and you have to go down these long long stairs from the street because it gets goes down about i mean i forget how many meters leon said it was but it's it feels like you're on those stairs for fucking ever and you get down there and it's like oh my god it's so fucking cool though jamie like there, there are Portions of it where I am so tall, I have to crouch down and just kind of not not cr- like not on all fours. Like right. Brandon, Brandon can walk through just fucking fine, but it, you know right. I I have to duck to keep like from the 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 ceiling from scraping my head, and then you Is the suddenly
2: ceiling made of bone.
3: Uh, no, 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 no. Okay. Uh, so most of the ca- the the, la- the most of the catacombs are just it's hollowed out tunnels because it, right. it, the tunnels were created by quarries, right? The ossuaries are these large portions of the tunnel, these kind of caverns that were filled with bones, but the the bones aren't in the ceiling; they're stacked on all sides. So there are some okay. you'll go, and there's like a wall of bone, and they've left just enough space between the the, the top of the, the the pile, as it were, and the bottom of the the cavern that you can kind of lean in and look and see how far back that pile goes and there are ones who are like holy shit i mean it is crazy and they're stacked very you know symmetrically for support so they could so they don't the skulls aren't supporting the cavern at all they're just they're They're just they're just placed there there and they kind of look like they're the walls but they're not they're they're just they're 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 collected there um and but in some you know, while most of the rooms where the skulls are, there's plenty of room to move around so that you don't have to, like, you know, move sideways to keep from, you know, grazing a wisdom tooth or something. You, <laughs> <laughs> uh, There are some areas where, where those skulls are real close because they're tight. And there's some right. areas that they're, they've closed off with. You know, there's little rooms that you see. There's, like, uh, little uh, iron, wrought iron gates in front of them with locks. And you can look in and you can see, like, where the walls or the, the towers of bones have collapsed uh, over time, wow. you know. And yeah. it's... It's freaky, but it's so fucking cool. And there's so many formations in there. There's like a big sphere column made of bones uh, mm. that looks like and it may well be a supporting structure. But wow. it's entirely of bones. There there are bone there's bone art within the, the stacks of bones. So there's you know, skulls, you know, in rows of skulls, there's skulls strategically placed to look like hearts. There's one that, you know, there's crosses, there's things like that. It's it's really fucking cool. And what's even cooler is that in front of certain plaques where it says like here lie the remains of the people that were once buried in you know, this cemetery or that cemetery, um, or within this pile we suspect this is where the remains of this person may be, then uh, people come down there and leave offerings. They'll leave roses or food. Um and it's really cool. Also weirdly, yeah. you can turn a corner and go down this one place where when it was still a quarry and when it was still an active quarry, some uh, some guy, I forget his name, um <laughs> he would later die in the catacombs. Um, uh, but this was the, I think this late 17, early 1800s, or maybe even before that, maybe 1600s. He, he, While he was down there, it just secretly, he spent so much time down there that he carved out in this little cavern, he carved out a replica of uh, several famous Parisian buildings at the time, including the the uh, Palais <laughs> de Jocès and and uh, Notre-Dame and and uh, uh, Saint-Chapelle. And it's really fucking cool to see it like, oh, there's just like this little dude was like just chipping away. And he'd be like, oh, I'm going to take a coffee wow. break. And he would go in there and make this kind of sketch model in in carved stone of Paris as it was in his day. And it was really fucking cool. There's all kinds of cool shit. You'll be in this really tight tunnel and then turn a corner and suddenly you open out into this massive you know, uh, aqueduct that looks like, you know, there's arches everywhere and there's this massive ceiling and it feels like, oh, okay, now I feel like I'm in Game of Thrones.
2: <laughs> <laughs> right. Now yeah. I'm in some sort of weird palace, but that's cool. Yeah.
3: It's amazing. I, it's wow. really fucking cool. And the, the, the bone, the ossuaries themselves are very fucking cool. I just, I love yeah. it. I wish we had something like that here in the States.
2: Well, we probably do, but it's not nearly as like spiritual or to, it's just more like serial killer. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably. Yeah, I want something like that's this
3: that's not in a barn in Michigan. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank so, you.
3: There you go, there you go. Let's uh, That's we take awesome. A, that's take awesome. Quick...
2: Okay, so let's take a little break and then let's get yeah. into some and then
3: it's really, flesh really And then let's sink our teeth into your subject.
2: That's uh-huh. right. Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> 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 Hey, it's commercial time. It, well, it's kind it's of commercial. It's commercial time. It's, it's kinda, commercial time. Com- commercial. Join, our, <laughs> join our, our Patreon. Be a patron. Be um, a patron. We support appreciate us. all the support we get. We um, really do. But if you could help us. And join our Patreon. Uh, you get an extra couple chats. Yeah. With us on the Discord, you can be we a member of the also Discord. Also
3: love to talk to you guys.
2: Yes, and we uh, really appreciate the uh, support so that we can stay away from commercials as long as possible. Right. Other than this one. Yes, so which is just more of us. So it's like
3: just added content, yeah. really.
2: Exactly. Patreon.com. Google Intentions. There's several different tiers to choose from. Um, We're gonna consolidate those soon. I say out loud so that I will do it. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Our chats are going to be on the 10th of October.
0: 10th of October. (laughs)
2: 10th of October at 12 noon Central Standard Time. Yes. And that is for every member of the Discord. And for our fat Phantasm tier is on Saturday the 17th at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. We will be having those, yes. uh, those chats with our Discord what, members. What? Uh, we've also revised the Discord a little bit. So yeah. it's really running smoothly. Our admins are amazing on there. They're so so fucking great. thank you, you guys. to them. Oh
3: my God, you admins are like the lifeblood.
2: Yes. Thank you, admins. Thank you, patrons. Thank you, listeners. We appreciate all of you um, and enjoy the rest. Bye. <laughs> we're back. Uh, uh, all right. If only they could hear so, the in between
3: when we're so loopy. <laughs> we're
2: like, <laughs> I know. Michael just sang. Let's just like, one, one day
3: we should just do an episode where it's just all the in between stuff stitched together into <laughs> an hour. Just the random and a half. shit we
2: talk about? Yeah. Why not? Yeah. Jack has said he has a hard time following us because we bounce so much from topic to topic, but we find our way back.
3: I think, I don't think we bounce too much from topic to topic. We we are keeping it relevant.
2: That's right. <laughs> we bounce just right.
3: I have no problem following us at all.
2: Me either. What
3: do you think, listeners? <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, if we get lost,
2: we're lost together. So then we yeah. can find our way back.
3: It's the journey. Together. It's the journey, That's right. not the destination, because we don't know what the destination is any more than you do.
2: Yeah. <laughs> the destination is finishing this drink so you can get to the next one. Exactly. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All, All right. of a sudden, it feels like a Friday. I don't know what happened. There. I know okay. it's
3: weird. Let's let's get uh, let's not. get fleshy.
2: Flesh. Let's get fleshy, y'all. Okay. <laughs> oh, that sounds uh, gross. So yeah, you did bones. I got skin.
3: <laughs> we leave you holding the bag.
2: <laughs> it always makes me think of scrotum. So I'm just gonna say that now. Anytime someone's like the bag, I'm like. <laughs> In your inside. story,
3: I'm gonna be very disappointed if there's not a coin purse made out of a coin purse.
2: Oh, that's deep.
3: <laughs> well, it depends on who they use.
2: I also just. Poured my tart cherry juice all over my face. <laughs> Luckily, I'm wearing white.
3: The euphemism so. is impossible to avoid given our conversation. But <laughs> I know. I will just. What do you know? Listeners, get your minds out of the gutter.
2: <laughs> no, le- stay there. No, I no mean, one's there's judging. only room
3: it's... for so many of us, goddamn but We have to make room.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as long as you're, you look at, you judge your space. You make your own decisions based on your space. Okay. Right. All right. All right. My sources are Wikipedia, of course. <laughs> an article by Jacob Shelton on Ranker, the American Bookbinders Museum, an article by Patty Vipond on TroubleAndSqueak.com, and an article on DesignInaba.com.
3: And okay. brought to you by Joanne's Fabrics. <laughs> <laughs> but not really. Get your
2: flesh for 20% off through the weekend. Um, <laughs> they do have—I'll just— They have great um, deals. They do not—we are not— uh, uh, Supporting. We are not Jo-Ann's affiliated with them way. Anyway.
3: Like They're not paying us, and we never go there.
2: Yeah, but I do want to say their Halloween selection is great, and you can usually get a really good sale in there. So I fucking love Joanne's. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I just need to say that's one of my favorite places. I think so.
3: Devin goes there a lot for his costume, or did for his cosplay costume. stuff because uh, yeah. yeah, whatever. But I mean, you ben, know, it's it's. I don't think I've been inside of Joanne's Fabric for twenty
2: years. Oh my gosh! Don't discount their decor. Especially for holidays because it's not crazy expensive, and they usually will have like forty percent off or something. All right. Same all thing right, yeah, with maybe. their silk flowers.
3: Okay. All right. Things Res- to
2: keep in mind. Respect. Especially if like but if you're wrapping not, a present and you want to put a little not. flower in there, it's a great place. We just are buy not them in bulk.
3: We're not helping the illusion. We're not helping <laughs> with people that are like. Are they sponsoring you? We're not helping with that. No, like, no, no they're really I just aren't really aren't sponsoring love it. us. Jamie just really right. loves it. I know nothing about I just them. really love it. I you just thought go. it was a funny joke. <laughs>
0: um,
2: now, <laughs> let's talk about things that aren't on sale. Uh, they're just <laughs> probably very expensive when you think about it. Uh, first, we're going to talk about Big Nose George. <laughs> yeah. Born in 1834, George Parrot, that was his last name, Parrot, also known as Big Nose out of, George. Out of the, math, Big out of the mouth
3: pig. of a sailor.
0: Right.
2: <laughs> Big Beak Parrot was his other name. Uh, he was a cattle wrestler and highwayman in the American Wild West. Mm. In 1878, Parrot and his gang tried and failed to rob a train, so two law enforcement officers were sent to bring them in. The officers traced the outlaws to a camp at Rattlesnake Canyon near Elk Mountain, where they were spotted by a gang lookout. <laughs> the robbers I feel like, like I'm listening to an can-
3: audiobook version of a Larry McMurtry right. novel. It's great.
2: That's right. Um, the robbers stamped out the campfire and hid in a bush, and then when one of the lawmen came in and was investigating the ashes, they realized, "Oh, this shit's still hot." But it was too late. Uh-oh. The robbers ambushed them, oh. Uh, ambushed that guy, killed him, caught the other lawman, and killed him as well. Ooh. So uh, the murder of the two lawmen was quickly discovered, and a $10,000 reward was offered for the apprehension of their murderers. This was later doubled to $20,000, and that was in like the a, 1800s. So it's like
3: four million bucks or something. Yeah, it, like,
2: it was a lot. Four quadrillion thousand million billions. Uh- <laughs> More money
3: than was in the United States Treasury at the time. Right. (laughs) Uh,
2: So in February 1879, the following year, Big Nose George and his cohorts carried out a daylight robbery of a merchant from Montana, even though the merchant was traveling with a military convoy containing 15 soldiers, two officers, an ambulance, and a wagon from Fort Keogh that was supposed to collect the Army payroll. However, thanks to a coolie, which is like a little valley for those mm. who don't know, mm-hmm. and turn and a turn in the trail, the convoy was spread out, which allowed the robbers to capture them bit by bit. So the first people oh, came, oh, they shit. captured them. Then the next people came, they captured them. Um, and so they were successful in that case. Big Nose George and the gang got away with 3600 to $14,000, depending upon who you talk to.
3: Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, yeah. Um, <laughs> Once caught a fish <laughs> yeah. this big, yeah.
2: Right, because journalism really... Has always been about the headline. Okay. <laughs> uh, George got drunk with what? not all journalists, whatever. Uh, George got drunk with one of his cohorts and bragged about the killing, which was fucking stupid. And so that got his dumb, murderous ass arrested. He was sentenced to hang on April 2nd, 1881, following a trial, but tried to escape— fracturing the skull of a jailer in the process. He was not successful in his escape, but news of his attempted escape made its way through town. While the jailer lay recovering, masked men with pistols burst into the jail. They took the jailer's keys while holding the man at gunpoint and then dragged George from his cell to face a lynch mob of 200 people.
0: One of his gang members faced a similar
2: fate when he tried to escape as well. So later, Uh Uh the gang member was like, I'm going to escape. They caught him and lynched him as well. Doctors Thomas McGee and John Eugene Osborne took possession of George's body after his death to study the outlaw's brain for clues to his criminality. The top of his skull was crudely sawn off, and the cap was Uh. presented to 15-year-old Lillian Heath, then a medical assistant to Dr. McGee. Lillian Heath became the first female doctor in Wyoming and is said to have used the cap as an ashtray, a <laughs> pen holder, and a doorstop. <laughs> a I mean, mask, it's a fitting yeah. fate. Yeah. A death mask was also created of George's face, and skin from his thighs and chest were removed. The skin, including the dead man's nipples, was sent to a tannery in Denver where it was made into a pair of shoes and a medical bag. They were kept <laughs> by Osborne, who wore the shoes. This is the best part. I think. It, they, uh, he wore the shoes to his inaugural ball after being elected as the first Democratic governor of the state of Wyoming. <laughs>
3: Tough on crime, you bet your ass. Like.
2: <laughs> right. I'll walk all over you assholes. Um, George's dismembered body was stored in a whiskey barrel filled with salt, uh, salt solution for about a year while the experiments continued until he was buried in the yard behind McGee's office. Then, in May uh, of 1950, construction workers unearthed a whiskey barrel filled with bones while working on the Rollins National Bank on Cedar Street in Rollins. Inside the barrel was a skull with a top sawed off, a bottle of vegetable compound, and the shoes said to have been made from Big Nose George's (laughs) thigh flesh. Dr. Lillian Heath, so the 15-year-old girl, she was then in her 80s, was contacted, and she still had the skull cap and sent it in uh, to be Uh um, tested. And it was found to fit the skull of the, uh, that, that was found in the barrel perfectly. Oh. Then they did DNA testing, which later confirmed the remains were those of Big Nose George. Today, the shoes made from the skin of Big Nose George are on permanent display at the Carbon County Museum in Rawlins, together with the bottom part of the outlaw's skull and Big Nose George's earless death mask. The shackles used during the hanging of the outlaw, as well as the skull cap, are on show at the Union Pacific Museum in Omaha, Nebraska. The medicine bag has Uh never been found.
3: Uh, Inside that medicine bag, you just know is a marital aid made from his nose. Mm. That's what they don't tell you. (laughs) Something.
2: I just like the idea that somebody has inherited this medical bag, and they have no idea it's made of human skin.
3: I mean, talk about donating your body to science. Oh,
2: yeah. Uh, okay. Uh. Now we have Antoine <laughs> LeBlanc. Oh. Antoine was a 19th century murderer and a French immigrant to the United States. LeBlanc, speaking little to no English, decided to come to New York to seek his fortune after being disowned by his family in France. I
0: mean. In 1830,
2: yeah, right, you know, in 1833, a few weeks after his arrival, Judge Samuel Sayre, allowed Antoine to live in the small, dank basement of Sayers Morrison, New Jersey farmhouse for no pay, but in exchange for chopping wood and feeding hogs. So that was the deal. Cows. He wasn't getting paid, and he didn't have to pay any rent or anything. Yeah. After two weeks of taking orders and hard work, he became angry and murdered the farmer by stabbing him in the back with an axe. Antoine then used a club to kill Sayers' wife, Sarah, and their servant, most likely a slave, Phoebe. Since Jesus. everyone was dead, he then ransacked the house for valuables before making his escape.
3: Oh, God. After the
2: crime was discovered, because LeBlanc, as he was leaving, like, left a trail of their shit, like breadcrumbs, down the road.
3: Him back somebody... His family disowned him because they're like, he's a fucking idiot. He's, he's an dangerous idiot. and he's a fucking idiot. And he's
2: dumb. Uh, yeah, they were like, hey, you think maybe we should follow that trail of goods? And so they followed the breadcrumbs and, like, found him in some hotel and he still had all their shit <laughs> it's on It's like
3: a morbid just, Looney Tunes <laughs> episode. Yeah.
2: yeah, and it's like, be, how did he have that much that he was just dribbling it be, he went and still be, had it when he got there? Be very,
3: very so, quiet. I'm hunting murderers. Um,
2: he was captured and tried, and the local judge ordered him hanged and dissected. So the dissection was something it was— That's uh, an option on that, the law books?
1: <laughs> yeah. It,
2: what it meant was he was going to be donated to, uh, to doctors. Okay. So the doctors could research. Right. That's what dissected meant. So, okay. Because they were going to cut them off. <laughs> like- um, yeah. LeBlanc was hanged for his crime before over 10,000 witnesses on wow. September 6th, 1833. Jesus. After his death, I mean, it was probably one of those days. I just imagine that it was a hanging day. And so you'd go out to the hanging because. What
3: if they had like know, a halftime show.
2: Yeah, you
0: didn't have video <laughs> games. So you got to go watch a hanging. Um,
2: after his death, LeBlanc was taken to a medical lab and experimented on with electrical cur- currents. When the doctors were done with the sciencing of Antoine, <laughs> they created his death mask and then peeled off his skin and sent it to the Atno tannery on Washington Street, where it was turned into charming little keepsakes like wallets, curses, <laughs> lampshades, and book jackets.
0: For the folks who weren't lucky enough to snag a wallet, they
2: could go to the streets to buy a strip of his skin personally signed by the sheriff to verify its authenticity.
3: Oh. And so I just want to pause here for a moment to comment on how, like— Sometimes, you know, sometimes we put a murderer to death. It feels like the right thing to do, for, for my, for my in my humble opinion, because they're a murderer and they're danger to society and they should just be fucking yeah. taken out of it because, you know, whatever. But sometimes it feels like, <laughs> sometimes <laughs> sometimes stories like this happen and I'm like, it feels like he was put to death because society was like, mad at him for trying to best them for morbidity they're like oh you think you're a savage bitch please like it's (laughs) so fucking weird it's like how dare this murderous barbarian kill people let's make shit out of his flesh to teach (laughs) the world a lesson
2: (laughs) yeah which seems like the opposite like that's going to carry his memory on. Maybe what we want to do is forget he ever existed. Yeah. That's, that's the truth, right? I think
3: that's a proper punishment is just make them, yeah. like, make them disappear and completely so that, you know. But it's yeah. like, oh, my. Because there's so many fucking psychos out there like, oh, my God. I'm going to be a murderer. I'm going to be famous. And they're going to turn me into a kite. Like, the, and, <laughs> and they'll do oh. it for that reason because they're fucking crazy. But, yeah. yeah, I just feel, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I just. I, it's so. I'm, yeah. I'm. I'm
2: uh-huh. <laughs> That's just 2 <laughs>
3: I'm I mean I love I love the shit of this and I also know myself well enough to know that if I came across one of those wallets I would totally fucking take one but I'd be like maybe I mean, I, do I'd be need like, to... I mean let's just I mean it's human wallet I mean it's already made I'd hate for it to go to waste. It's
2: for sale. It's not like taking a bone out of the, you know, it's it's for sale. It's for sale.
3: You it's just as flesh. <laughs> that was going to go away anyway.
2: That's right. It was, yeah. Uh, so now let's talk about books bound in human skin.
3: Oh, okay.
2: Anthropodermic bibliopedgy is the academic term for books bound in human skin.
3: <laughs> Got to make it sound fancy because it's like bibliopedgy. head cheese. It's only called head I'm cheese. It's- Peggy, no one's gonna call <laughs> yeah, probably. Pagey, um, okay, I think, Peggy because I think little... of
2: pedagogy. Oh,
3: so yeah, 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 probably.
2: yeah.
3: Um, <laughs> you gotta call it, it something anthro... fancy because it's like head cheese, you gotta call it head cheese because no one in the right mind is gonna eat something called head meat, which is what it actually That's,
2: is. Yeah, <laughs> so it's yeah, like right. books bound in human flesh.
3: Oh, uh, no, it's uh, la. it's something it's
2: anthropodermic, it's anthrop... bibliopedia. <laughs>
1: Well, that's quite Uh, different.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. So throughout the Middle Ages and popularized more in the 1800s, again, we're back in the 1800s. So this Mm. was more of a thing they were doing then. (laughs) Books have been bound in human skin for a variety of reasons. The owners of these skins include medical patients, secret admirers, criminals, enemies, and more. Whether from the behest of the donor before death, or at the strange obsession of a doctor, or even at the bidding of the law, several of these tomes have survived the test of time. One of those is called De Destiny de Lama. It means destinies of the soul.
3: Okay, all right.
2: Um, <laughs> Des, Des Destinies de l'Amma. Um Harvard's, <laughs> it's either Houghton or Houghton Library, H-O-U-G-H-T-O-N. I can't ever get that one right.
0: Mm. Uh,
2: Houghton, Houghton. Yeah, Houghton. Um, Harvard's Probably. Houghton Library boasts a single proven anthropoderm- anthropodermic <laughs> binding, des destinies de la by French writer Arsène hussa.
0: It's You're
3: saying letter. it wrong. You've got to be Arseneus. Oh.
2: Arseneus <laughs> <laughs> Uh bound in the mid 1880s. This volume, presented by the author himself to his friend Dr. Bouland, who completed the binding, is a meditation on the soul and contains an inscription by Bouland detailing the origins of its binding. So here's the inscription. This book is bound in human skin parchment on which no ornament has been stamped to preserve its elegance. By looking carefully, you easily, you can easily distinguish the pores of the skin. A book about the human soul deserved to have human covering. I had kept this, <laughs> this quotes, I had kept this piece of human skin taken from the back of a woman. It's interesting to see the different aspects that change this skin according to the method of preparation to which it is subjected. Compare, for example, with a small volume I have in my library, Sever.
0: <laughs>
2: Pineus de Virginitatis, Notis, which is also bound in human skin, but tanned with sumac.
3: <laughs> what the <laughs> fuck this guy murdered people
2: he, this is not this somebody guy,
3: this guy it's... fucking murdered people and kept them in a freezer like there's no fucking way like what it's fascinating like mm
2: High functioning sociopath,
3: uh- <laughs> very high functioning, and a little brave, <laughs> yeah. a little, a little too like. Oh, I bet it's just a book bound in flesh. There's nothing weird about it that. It
2: deserves it. It deserves yeah, it. Deserves oh, a, oh, book. Oh, oh. a book about okay. the
3: soul deserves to be bound in a human body. Why not? It's <laughs> no, you know. Why not? It's, uh, God forbid we use his- our imaginations.
2: <laughs> the <laughs> Historical <laughs> Medical Library of the College of Physicians of Philadelphia, and the Stockton Huff Collection. The historical medical library is located within the mutter museum in philadelphia so we know the mutter museum Mm -hmm, mm it's the 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 morbid museum yeah um it proclaims to house the largest collection of confirmed anthropodermic bindings in the united states Hmm. Hmm. through inscriptions and historical documentation we know that three of the five books share a mysterious past all bound at the hands of Dr. John Stockton Huff, and all bound in the skin of Mary Lynch, a tuberculosis patient at the Philadelphia General Hospital who died in 1869. Evidently, Dr. Stockton Huff collected a sample of Mary's skin before her burial in 1869 and kept it for several decades before binding these books in the 1880s. Why did he collect her skin? No one really knows. But the books <laughs> don't themselves know, are- Don't we, though?
3: Fucking don't we? Because <laughs> he's a, <laughs> he was fucking a fucking psychopath. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> why did no he collect No one knows
3: skin? why he Because he was a
2: psychopath. He... Okay. <laughs> he, had an, he had an
3: allergy to allegedly. synthetic leathers. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, the books themselves are historical texts
2: on female health and reproduction. Oh, God. How does one?
0: <laughs> I know. Sorry, that's too it's... good. <laughs> what a... Why? Oh my
1: God. I know. Oh, the irony.
2: So, how does one determine if a book is truly bound in human skin or if it is actually a more common leather taken from sheep, goat, cow, or pig? Des de and the Stockton Huff collection were scientifically tested using the same method through a process called peptide (laughs) mass fingerprinting, (PMF), PMF uses very minute samples from the book's binding and tests for specific amino acid sequencing, comparing the results to what, uh, what is known to occur in various mammals. The Anthropodermic Book Project's goal is to investigate claims of human skin book bindings. So far, they have tested 30 books claimed to be bound in human skin using the peptide mass fingerprinting method, with 18 positive results and 12 books determined to be fakes. No published lists of results exist, as many institutions wish to remain private on the um, status of their material. I,
3: I can't buy this on Amazon <laughs> Marketplace.
2: You can't. Probably. I don't
3: know. <laughs> I just I'm so badly want like a trashy novel. Like, <laughs> or some really stuff. Like, Fifty Shades of Grey, but it's bound in like the skin of Harvey <laughs> Feinstein. <laughs> Weinstein? Weinstein. <laughs> Weinstein, uh, yeah. Weinstein. I mean, that motherfucker. <laughs> we're t- I mean, look at that son of a bitch. We could do like a million printings.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, God. Yeah.
2: Oh, 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 God. Okay, so. You can use something the skin tags as bookmarks.
0: Oh, gross. Right. Sorry. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs>
2: mm.
3: <laughs> Texture. Sorry, I didn't mean to bring the room down.
2: Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> food up, room down, food up. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so, for something a little bit different, we also have Japan's black market for tattooed human skin. Oh. This is fucking fascinating okay so okay. the traditional method of tattooing and the name given to it in Japan is Irazumi. Irazumi probably uh, something like that okay It is a method of hand poking the ink under the skin without the reliance on stencils or machines and some say that it dates back as far as 10,000 BC. Oh, wow. It's a very, very particular art form, and it is known as an art form. Mm. Um, But at the turn of the 20th century, the ruling Japanese government, in a move to make a positive impression on the West, outlawed the practice of tattooing completely, forcing the artists and consumers underground. It Mm. wasn't until 1948 that tattooing was legalized again. By this time, though, tattooing had become associated with criminality. Uh, At one time, criminals were marks on their arms— to let society know this is not somebody that you want to talk to, this is not somebody you want to employ, this is not somebody you want to uh, serve at your business,
3: unless you got somebody right. that needs taken out.
2: That's right. So <laughs> it was a it was a red flag from the government to you <laughs> that this is not somebody that's, you want to. If only they, it was every a great way for them to advertise. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, then when it was outlawed, tattooing was a criminal activity in itself. Right. So when it came back, it's been tied to criminality. Mm. And, of course, the most, no, most notorious of Japan's criminals were the Yakuza.
3: The Yakuza. Or yes. the Yakuza. Yeah. Pronounced. Though hidden
2: away in public, underneath long sleeve shirts and high collars, Yakuza members have some of the largest and most intricate body suits in the world. Many oh. are almost completely covered from their neck down to their ankles, and it's all done in the classic Irizumi style. So I
3: think it's cool. As we I know, think it looks great.
2: Irizumi. Irizumi. Huh?
3: I think it looks great. I think it's super, like, Yeah, it's like, cool. Stunning. It's
2: really cool and, and intricate. Yeah. Um, As we know, tattoos can be an expensive addiction. Uh. In Japan, this price is magnified due to the limited number of artists that are available, especially in this style. I think there's something like 3,000 in the entire country, and that's it. Wow. And they're not easy, and they're booked up, and they're not easy necessarily to find. Uh. According to several sources, there are some families in Japan that invest in you getting a tattoo, They pay for the tattoo and a further £60,000 on one condition. When you die, they get the skin back. (laughs) A tattooed, stretched canvas can bring in millions on the black market. Wow. Basically, a Yakuza member or criminal family, so the richer of the Yakuza,
3: would pay for someone to
2: host artwork on their body, paying for the ink and giving a little extra to the host of the art. The host would continue with their life as usual with the artwork on their skin increasing in value year after year. And some of these families, too, would have an upwards of a hundred different people wow. that they're investing in.
3: Yeah. Wow, that's so. I I'm fascinated by it. Like, I'm really. It's yeah okay okay, okay yeah, yeah I told you I, it's fascinating it, yeah
2: many families may have to wait eighty years in order to collect their artwork for selling huh. but that's so should be like worth a generational the, wait for the millions fame. that the skin can make on the black market right yeah unless you need the money oh so you know accidents happen
0: oh, oh.
2: so they'll pay somebody get the tattoo done then decide they need that money and take the skin oh. so they accidents happen so that the person dies and then they have the skin and they could make that money oh my god so if you thought oh. oh i could get tattooed i wouldn't mind doing that they could have my skin just no
3: they may sometimes they may be like hey we're here to collect a little earlier than we thought yeah, sorry statistically, you, didn't read, you didn't read the fine you print. might get
2: pushed off of a roof or something <laughs> <laughs> oh. statistically <laughs> you know oh. yeah Accidents, but only uh, probably accidents that don't damage the skin. Right,
3: yeah. Um. Nice tattoo. Yeah. Be ashamed if uh, something happened to it.
2: <laughs> yeah, nice, nice tattoo there. So in case you're thinking there's no fucking way this is true, in the j k <laughs> Medical University, there is on display an almost intact bodysuit taken from a Yakuza member in the 1930s. Richard Slater wrote a thesis in 2011 titled... Hung Out to Dry, a Multidisciplinary (laughs) Analysis and Recording of a Preserved 19th Century Tattooed Human Skin. In this, he features the Yakuza canvas and states that it is believed to have been bequeathed by its occupant in return for free medical care during life. Wow. Wow. In a paper entitled Pain for Pride, Ina Roska comments on how bodysuits have been re- removed from their owners after death. She continues by saying, Rumors persist that collectors still buy tattooed human skin, even though the practice is illegal.
0: Oh, oh,
2: And there's another one. And, oh. and just like I, you would just have a fucking skin of a person hanging in your house
0: in your
3: gallery. It's what? like, oh, this is this is a tattoo of a this is a wonderful, um. Would you have to lie to people and just tell them it's like an oil painting or like a cross stitch? <laughs> or yeah. would you only, only tell your closest relatives, like, that's human skin?
2: Do you remember George? <laughs> right. You remember oh, George? my God. Oh, Let me tell you a story fuck.
3: about George. The wealthy are just fucking weird. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Oh. Uh, okay. Oh. And last up, we have luxury human leather bags. <laughs> <laughs> Central St. Martin's Material Futures graduate Tina Gorjank explored the intersection between design biology and luxury with a conceptual collection of leather items made of skin grown from DNA.
3: Oh, okay. so this was grown. That's fascinating.
2: Yeah. In her project, Pure Human Embodied Luxury,
0: <laughs> Gorjok
2: pushes the definition of luxury in the design industry and criticizes the current legislation on biotechnology, which until now only focuses on medical procedures. The Pure Human project uses recent developments in tissue engineering in which scientists are able to grow human skin in a laboratory. Genetic material is extracted and placed in a cell culture. Then the cells are harvested and skin tissue is tanned and processed into leather. Gorjank shows how genetic information can be seen as a source of luxury, but also points out how easily a person or corporation can claim ownership over biological material, Uh, highlighting a concern about the protection of biological information. uh, The products in the human skin collection include a tanned bag, a freckled backpack, And a tattooed jacket. And
3: a fanny pack made of real fanny.
2: And the DNA (laughs) is from Alexander McQueen. So it's literally an Alexander McQueen. (laughs) 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 Oh, God. Oh, Oh,
3: that's That's great. That's great. Oh, my God. I love the shit out of that. That's so good. (laughs) I I was like, "What?" Now, why can't we have like a furniture store of like made of human parts? So it's like you know, it's a lumbar chair. No, like really, right?
0: (laughs) So I wonder, like, if that could be.
2: If you think about it, like, could that be a source of leather for people who don't, you know, vegans who are, you know, in it because of the animals and stuff like that? So. You, this this leather is DNA created, yeah. so it's yeah. it's locally sourced. <laughs> no animals get injured. <laughs> we just use our DNA so that we can make leather bags.
3: <laughs> oh my god! I right? mean, I feel like it's ethical. Right, certain, it seems like <laughs> certainly it. more ethical than killing people so you can get their tattoos earlier than natural, right? Uh, you know, just to have hanging up, and you're you're like, oh, it's, yeah, yeah. Certainly it's more yeah. ethical than yeah, I, yeah,
2: yeah. Oh, but well, then you could do so you make a, an actual canvas from the skin that you've made from a, from DNA, mm-hmm. and then the tattoo artist can go in and tattoo the canvas, and people can buy an actual. Canvas of quote human skin, but nobody suffered.
3: I would want skin made from like uh, skin manufactured from my own DNA. That way I could wear a coat or like, you know, made of me. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, how fun would that be to explain to people like, this tie is actually made from me? Like, basically, what you see is what you get. I'm the same inside inside
2: and out. So if you had a leather good that was made from human skin, uh-huh. yours or someone else's, what would it be?
3: <laughs> uh, boots. I'd wear, I wear boots. leather boots made of me. Um, you didn't
2: say coin purse. I thought you'd say coin
3: no, I, I mean, who, coin uses, purse, who, coin purse. who uses a coin purse anymore? Uh That's true. <laughs> <laughs> so, would, many answers, so many answers, so many jokes. Maybe a hat. May, yeah, right. Maybe, uh, I don't know. But, like, my first thought is boots. I can't think of anything else leather that I ever would wear. I'm not right. really much may, into leather. I don't leather. want
2: it on my face, so I a hat see. <laughs> yeah,
3: but it would be, it's really, yeah, I kind of want, just to be really freaky and uncanny, I kind of want a mask. Of me mm. that I can wear mm-hmm. over my actual face and for have people just like Brian wa-
2: Cranston did once at a <laughs> yeah
3: San yeah. Diego yeah but wait but like so good that people just look at me going something's different about you
2: <laughs> yeah and then yeah. I pull the
3: mask off to reveal that it's me it's you um, that's ah. like the laziest Scooby-Doo villain ever um
2: <laughs> yeah
3: what about you I think you? I'd
2: have to start small I just like a little bracelet, just a little like leather, maybe a watch band, maybe a keychain holder, <laughs> something just a little, just that a little I could, something. Like a little start, keep, me slow, start me slow, tiny keeps. Start me slow.
3: Yeah, I'm all in. Exactly. I'm all in. I want an entire suit made out of me. For like, I want an entire, I want the jacket. I want, I want like a three piece suit and boots and a hat yeah. and a tie. All of it made of me. The only thing not made of me would be the shirt. And the shirt I can't the shirt can be made of like my hair. Like I'll have okay. a hair Yeah. I um, maybe maybe my beard. There's more hair there to work with. <laughs> a beard hair shirt.
2: Beard hair shirt. <laughs> that sounds itchy. It sounds very it, it, itchy.
3: Yeah, yeah, Let's yeah. Go so with maybe cotton. not. I'll, can s- have cotton. I'll go with cotton. Fine. Yeah. Boring. <laughs> uh,
2: so that is our bag of bones Ooh, episode. We hope you guys enjoyed it as nice. much as we did. This is great. Um, this is one of the ones I don't always, you know, I fill Jack in a little bit most of the time when I do these, but I was like, when I got done, I was like, you have got to hear this shit. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. I
0: spent like an
2: hour telling
3: <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I love yeah. it. Well, thank it's you guys thank you for guys. listening and, and taking yes. this, this, this morbid little tour with us. Uh, yeah. next, next week's episode, we'll have a similar similar morbid fun Halloweeny y theme. Right. And,
0: we have uh, chat,
2: pa- patron chats coming on our Discord the next couple of weeks. Stay yeah. tuned. We have some really exciting things coming out for Halloween. Mm-hmm. Um, so pay attention to the uh, Ghoul Intentions Twitter uh, yes. at um, Ghoul Intent. And we'll keep you updated on what's going on there. Um, And we'll announce it here as well. But we will be having an event on Halloween. um, And we'll get into those details in the next couple weeks so that you'll know. But, yeah. Thank you, guys. Um, Patrons, stay tuned as well because there's some information for you coming out as well. Yes. Yes. Very exciting. Discounts. discounts. Um, And we have new merch and all kinds. It's very exciting. It's very exciting. Yeah. Thank you guys for the support. (sighs) Um, Thank you for listening. Stay safe. Stay sane. And remember,
3: it's okay okay to sleep with the lights lights on.
1: on.